Eight meters. Seven. Six. Five meters, man. Four. What the hell? Hello there, sweethearts, and welcome back to a new episode of Hyperbaric Highlights. With myself, some say I'm not bad for a human, it's bread roll. And with me, as always, is the man who mostly comes at night. Mostly. It's JT. <laughs> that could sound so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hi, everyone. Yeah, that was brilliant. I, I get nervous about these intros every week, but that, that was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't stress the fact that we don't really... Anyone who's listening to our podcast knows we're not exactly professional, but we don't plan anything. It's just kind of all just fucking comes out, really. So it's whatever I can think of on the spot. So apologies, JT, if I uh, make your knees knock a little bit. <laughs> no, it's all good, mate. It's all good. I like the suspense. It um, keeps me going on a Thursday, you know, getting more and more worried before we get to recording this. We record on Thursdays, by the way, people, but it comes out on a Monday morning if you weren't already in the know there. There we go. And um, speaking of uh, being nervous and stuff, last week we started our our series with uh, Alien, and we're continuing in a likewise fashion with the sequel Aliens, which came out in 1986. Now, JT, we, we sort of mentioned last week how old we were when we first saw Alien, but uh, do you remember the r- first time you saw this one? I do indeed. Um, it was with my dad and his best friend, and probably my mum as well, actually, to be fair. I remember him making a big deal of it. I, he would have got it out of the video shop, so I would probably... It came out in '86. So I reckon I'd have been about 13 when I first saw this, probably. So it would have been a year or two after it came out, when the video came out. So it took fucking ages back then, didn't they, to come out? Um, yeah, and I remember watching it on the big TV that we had at the time, which is probably about 27-inch now, and it was just epic. Um, as you said last week, my parents weren't particularly bothered once I got to sort of 11, 12, about me watching these 18 rated movies. I was watching Arnie and things like that at that age. Um, yeah, they, I, I still do remember it quite well, actually. What about yourself? Uh, so I first remember, I think I saw at least a bit of this, the tail end of it on TV once. Um, but the first time I watched it properly, my old man actually bought me the VHS um, secondhand. And it wasn't actually an ex-rental copy, although it was bought from a rental store. And funnily enough, it was actually already the special edition. It had the 17 restored minutes to it. Um, obviously, I don't think I've ever actually seen the theatrical theatrical cut if I can get my words out of this movie but yeah I think the first time I saw it properly again I was probably about the same as you um around sort of like 11 maybe even 12 years old mark and I remember all my friends like their parents used to hate me because when they came around my house we were always watching stuff like Alien and Predator and that because I had them all on video you go around their house and they all look fucking Benji or fucking Aladdin or something <laughs> like that it's like they all my mates all used to think I was like you know pretty cool so I was able to watch all these like grown-up movies but most of them ended up having nightmares and their parents didn't like me very much <laughs> I will say this one didn't terrify me the way that the first one did um, maybe it's because I had my parents in that around me but yeah I mean it's a brilliant film but it, it's not I wouldn't say it's scary at all, is it? It's obviously we'll talk about it as we go on, but this it's hard when people say what's the better film, this or Alien. It's just impossible because they're so different. Although they're the same franchise, they're nothing like each other, are they? No, they are really different. And again, I think both movies. Obviously, if you've never seen them, chances are people listening to this probably have. But if if someone's never seen them, I would say you know you could probably watch either one as a standalone movie, and you'll get a decent movie, and you'll be able to get a decent story. But obviously, watching them back to back, the first one's very methodical, 
it is a horror movie and it is fucking scary. Whereas this, that the horror just seems to like disappear, but in, in its place, there's like a lot of intrigue and there's loads of action and it's still a great movie. It's just very, very, like you said, it's very, very different, even though it's set in the same universe, but they just flowed together so nicely. Yeah, they do. Strange, isn't it? Chalk and cheese, but it really works. And um, yeah, obviously we'll go on and talk about it as we go through the podcast. Absolutely. So this one came out in 1986. Um, so what's that, about seven years after the first movie? Yeah. Um, and it took a little while to get going because despite the first Alien being a success, um, there was a lot of turmoil in Fox at that time. And some of them weren't enthusiastic about doing another Alien movie. There was a lot of like head changes of like, fucking publishers and um, producers and that going on. And there's also a few lawsuits uh, happening at 20th Century Fox. So it took a little while for this to kind of pick up traction. Now, in 1983, they hired James Cameron to write a script um, for Alien, and they originally didn't like it. And he was about to go and film Terminator. Now, Arnie, he was obviously in the Terminator quite famously. His contract for the next Conan movie came up, which meant the filming of Terminator was delayed. So Cameron had like the best part of nine months to then work on the script and make it better. Then he showed it to Fox and then they were like, all right, this, this script is really good. That's badass. Then in 1984, James Cameron released Terminator and it was like, again, another massive success. And they were happy with how good James Cameron wrote the script, but also how well he can direct now. So then they gave him the chair and um, obviously budgeted him to make Aliens into a movie. And the movie had a budget of $18.5 million and brought in a worldwide box office of $157 million. So not too shabby, really. No, it did well, didn't it? And I also read that a lot of the crew were quite against Cameron, weren't they? They weren't happy with him and they kept like pissing him off and they, they were just not into this at all at first. I mean, again, I don't know if that's true. This is Wikipedia talking. But he had a lot of problems, apparently, with some of the crew that were more into the Ridley Scott style of things. Yeah, I read similar things as well. And where I don't think the crew were familiar with Terminator uh, around the time they were filming this. Yeah, because I don't think it came out. Because back in those days, like you said, with VHS, you know, making movies took a hell of a lot longer. Like, you'd film them, then it would be like a year of pre-production. Then it might come out in cinemas and they come out in stage when it wouldn't be like worldwide releases and everything like you get nowadays. And I think, yeah, one of the co-directors and stuff, he was being a bit of a dick and like taking the piss out of Cameron and saying he should be the one directing. And then they gave him a hard time and then they fired a few people. And then once those sort of morons are out of the picture, everything went smoothly. But yeah, I read a similar thing. Also, um, Sigourney Weaver wasn't really up for doing it, was she? She was scared that the Ripley character would just be watered down or whatever, and it would just end the sort of legacy she had in the first film. So she was dead against doing it at first, wasn't she? Yeah, I read that as well. And James Cameron actually sat and spoke to her and like told her, like fleshed out his full vision, which obviously got her back on board. But another thing that she was a little bit um, tentative about is like, cause she's like anti anti-gun. Like she gives money to like anti-gun movements and stuff in the U S and this movie is obviously quite action heavy and involves quite a lot of firearms and scenes with her using it which she was quite against um but again obviously cameron kind of talked around and spoke to her from the point of view of like the movie and the character's development and luckily she came on board because another thing as well she was on board but fox refused to pay her the one million contract that she was initially signed up for and she only got paid um it's got it yeah she got paid 35 grand for being an alien which obviously was a low-budget movie anyway. Um, but they weren't going to pay her the $1 million for this movie 
and it was actually Cameron. Fair play to him again. Like he went to bat for her, and I was like, no, this whole movie is written around Ripley as a character, and there's no other actress that can be her. We haven't even looked at other actresses. If she's not in, this movie isn't happening. Fox obviously bent over and paid Ripley, uh, paid Sigourney Weaver the asking price, and I think they're bloody glad they did because this is now one of the most iconic action movies in history, really. Yeah, yeah, they'd have, um, well, it, like it, James Cameron said, you couldn't have an alien film without Ripley in it, could you? It just wouldn't have worked. Even if they tried to do something and she wasn't in it at all, I still think people would have wanted her in it and would have expected her to be in it. So, yeah, fair play. And uh, the rest is history, as they say, and thank God it happened. Yeah, absolutely. It's quite interesting. Um, thinking about the year this came out, 1986. Now, this was quite a, um, a heavy summer. This was the seventh highest grossing film of that particular year. And it was going up against movies like The Karate Kid Part 2, Top Gun, which I think was the highest grossing movie that year. But one of your favourites came out this year as well, JT. Uh, Platoon came out in 1986. Oh, it did, didn't it? Yeah. I probably would have watched Platoon around the same time as this on video. So I remember having that and watching it over and over again, more than I would have watched Aliens. Because although I said at the top of this, it's not scary. It's probably still something when I was that age I wouldn't have watched on my own. Yeah, it's definitely quite intense. And also mm. that year, we had Star Trek Four, and I think that's the one that had the fucking whales or something, and it was shit, whatever it was. But then also <laughs> another film that came out that year, and I know we're probably going to review this down the line, but The Fly came out that year as well. Oh, that's another good film. That is a film I used to watch on my own, actually. Although I don't know if The Fly is particularly scary, but I do remember watching that over and over again. It fascinated me more than anything, I think. I love The Fly. I, know, I think it's great, but it's one of those movies Rachel fucking hates this film because the practical effects are so gruesome. It literally makes mm. her feel sick. So whenever I put this on, she it's like the only film I own, well, we own, should I say, because we both love horror movies, but it's the only thing that she's kind of squeamish about. But yeah, it is a great movie. It's just it's fucking weird as well. It is, and I think it's one we need to, uh, to review in a, in a later episode, definitely. Absolutely. So this movie is a bit more military-heavy than the original um and there's loads of these tones everything that kind of i was thinking when i was watching them obviously recently you just look at different tones from different directors so for example in the first movie obviously they're both very very dark but the colors that kind of highlight things in the first movie you've got kind of like tinges of like greens and yellows haven't you whereas james cameron Mm. shoots this with a lot of kind of blue tints it makes it feel a lot colder very more a bit more spacey and even the music because Jerry Goldsmith did the music for the first movie, and then James Horner did the music for Aliens. And although he keeps a couple of the original Goldsmith tracks, there's a much more like heavy militaristic vibe going to it. And again, it just this whole signature thing, isn't it, about like how different these movies are, despite the fact they're connected. Yeah, that's right. Also, did you know that unused portions of the score were actually used in the first Die Hard film that James Horner did? He kept them and then they used them in Die Hard, which is something I read the other day and I was making a few notes. No, I didn't know that. That's quite interesting. That's really yeah, neither did I until I read it the other day. That's badass. Um, and just mm. a point on the whole um, the military side of thing as well. Um, a lot of the crew ended up doing proper military training for this and Bill Paxton and Michael Bean were also encouraged to read the book Starship, Starship Troopers, which later on became <laughs> a movie itself. And the movie is nothing like the book. I love the movie and the book's quite interesting. But yeah, they were encouraged to read that to get an idea of what sort of space age Marines might be like. All right. And um, Al Matthews, who plays a poem, was actually a Marine, wasn't he? He was, yeah. 
and I think he did. I, I swear I read somewhere once that um he carried on doing like a lot of background support for military movies. Um, like that was part of his job outside of acting. He actually yeah, did a lot of like that. the choreography or like the training for actors, as well as doing his yeah. um his music as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I've read that. I mean, we had a bit of a soft spot for old Al Matthews, didn't we? And if no one's checked out his mu- his music, he's he's got a couple of uh, gems. One of them, apparently, I think it was Fool, did really well in the UK charts. I mean, good fucking, I don't know how long ago it was now, years before Aliens, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I know you tracked down one of his albums. We used to play it in the shop back in the day. And we, we had customers coming in going, what are you guys listening to? And like, this is a poem from Aliens. And they were like, really? Bloody hell. And it's, but yeah, we've got, we've got a poem singing in a hush chart. <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't quite manage to get... I don't know if he ever made a whole album. I think it was only four, three or four tracks I, I managed to get off him. I don't know if he ever released a full album, but he, he used to be um, our alarm clock, didn't he, in the morning? It sounds weird that we lived together. We didn't. <laughs> Before anyone starts making, like, putting two and two together and making ten. Um, but I think it, both separate times we both had him as our alarm tone in the morning. Because he's yeah, exactly. better to wake up to than, than now Matthews. <laughs> exactly, you know, it gets you started the right way. He does. <laughs> <laughs> and um, just before we obviously get started in the movie, now, strangely enough, because these are obviously R-rated movies, or they're originally both rated 18, but I think they were reclassified in 15 when they did the quadrilogy, because uh, times change a little bit. Now, I, I'm i guilty of this, but there was actually a toy line that went with this movie, although the toy line actually came out six years after the movie, which didn't really make much sense. <laughs> and I used to have loads of these toys. I think I've still got some in a box in the loft. They're probably worth a bit of money now from the Kenner toy line. And at the time, I didn't really think about it. But looking back, it's like, why do they have a fucking toy line for an 18-rated movie that is aimed at kids, you know, that probably shouldn't have been watching this movie unless they got irresponsible parents? <clears throat> Not me. Yeah. Um, I've always thought that as well, because they've released some alien figures again recently. And places like Toys R Us, although it doesn't exist anymore, but um, some of the toy shops are stocking them. I think Smith's Toys in the UK were stocking these alien toys. And again, I'm thinking all these movies, even now, are at least 15 rated, and some... I think Aliens might still be an 18. I think Alien was reclassified at 15. But they're not something you want your kids playing with, really, are they? You know, my daughter's absolutely fucking terrified of Alien. and I've not let her see the film before people start jumping to conclusions again. <laughs> but I, she's seen some of the figures I've got now, and she's petrified of him. And I, I wouldn't want her playing with toys because, no, it's not for kids. No, definitely not. I mean, I obviously, you know me, I'm a bit of a collector i've got loads of like the necker collectibles and stuff but even the mm. toy i mean the toy range the new ones that come out i know the ones you're on about and yeah they look a bit shit but even so it's like there's not even like i know disney technically own aliens now you know fuck knows what the future holds but it's not even like they've like done some kind of like cartoon or anything to go with it is it they just brought these fucking shit looking alien toys out with the brand out of nowhere and it's like I don't even know what they're supposed to be supporting, but yeah, it's not, it's not even a brand that kids are probably familiar with or shouldn't be familiar with, at least. No, it's weird. It's like you say, how are they expected to sell? Because they're a bit shit for serious collectors like yourself to buy, and kids are just going to be like, what's that? I've never heard of it, or I don't like the look of that. So, very strange. And the TV series is years away, isn't it? So, they can't really be saying they're bringing them out to support that. So, don't know. Weird. Yeah, that is really strange. So, obviously, like most sequels, things kind of get bigger, bolder, and better. And Alien, as we mentioned, it doesn't have any extras or anything, does it? It's just a seven-person movie, whereas Aliens yeah. has like a pretty large cast, really. Um, mm. Although it does, obviously, after a certain event, that dwindles down into like a handful. So just looking at the key characters that we've got in this movie, so obviously we've got Ellen Ripley returning. We briefly have Jones, good old Jones, he's still going. 
<laughs> He's still going, yeah. <laughs> then we got a character called Carter Burke, who probably couldn't have a better last name if he tried. He is a fucking Burke. Yeah. He is a bit. Then we got Lieutenant Gorman, and then we also later on meet Rebecca Jordan, who is known as Newt. Um, and this is actually her one and only acting role. I don't know whether like working with aliens scared the shit out of her, and she never wanted to act again. But she does attend like loads of alien conventions, and has been really well like connected to the series for years. And she's even yeah. voiced Ripley in some of the audio book audio books as well. Actually, because she went on to become a teacher after this. I mean, I've got that in my notes here that it's the only acting role she ever had so like you say maybe it did put her off but something i did read and i was thinking this um not spoiler alert just looking at the end when things get a bit intense and it's newton ripley and i was thinking how much do they let these child actors see you know because obviously she looks genuinely terrified um and some of that can't just be acting i don't know how old she was in his eight or nine maybe and then then i also read that they let her watch the first alien before she filmed this to give her a sort of feel for it and apparently she thought it's hilarious and laughed all the way through it i mean i'm fucking middle-aged and it scares the shit out of me now so maybe kids see things differently i don't know yeah maybe i mean it's lucky she didn't go out to be a psychopath if that's the case but no she, she turned yeah. out yeah like you say she got to be a teacher but yeah i always think that with these movies i like, even like movies like halloween and all that like when you've got like someone like michael myers or like say the alien or whatever chasing down kids like these child actors it makes you wonder what they think, isn't it? Like they say, how much they kind of like let them know or kind of support them in obviously dealing with these like hardcore movies, basically. Well, yeah, I mean, just going to the Queen, jumping ahead a little bit, they wouldn't let Sigourney Weaver know how it worked. The mechanics of it worked, the actual puppet or model, whatever they used. So it made her a bit more scared of it because she didn't know what was behind it. So, you know, how much did they show uh, Carrie Hen, who played Newt? Yeah, yeah, that's a good shout. Yeah, good call there. Um, so as mentioned, we've also got Sergeant Apone, played by Al Matthews, who's a favourite of ours. Then we got Corporal he's Hicks. Not, not in, sorry, I'll say he's not in it long enough, is he? He's not. No, the movie kind of loses something when um, when he leaves, but <laughs> we'll get to that. Then we've got um, Hicks, played by Michael Bean, who was in Terminator, but he actually wasn't the original choice to play Hicks. It was a guy called James uh, Ramar, I think his name is. People, Anyone who's watched Dexter, he plays Harry, Dexter's dad. And he's also appeared in movies like Judge Dredd and a few other things along the way. But apparently he was a bit of a prick on set. And there was an incident, um, and it's not ever been confirmed that it is contributed to him particularly. There was an incident where one of the props, the guns, fired around that actually blew through the wall and went into the set of um, A Little Shop of Horrors, which was being filmed next door. And they think that not him purposely obviously firing that, but that had something to do with him being fired as well as him being a bit of a dick. So... Michael Bean was brought in to play Hicks after that. Yeah, I, I read that earlier, actually, and I was making a few notes that he did that. And apparently Al Matthews was like, what the fuck? This has got live ammunition in it. He was a bit more clued up than us from being an ex-Marine, obviously. Yeah, because one part of the military training to make it authentic is obviously you're not supposed to walk around with your finger on the trigger, aren't you? Um, you're only supposed to put your finger on the trigger when you're in it, actually engagement. So, I mean, so maybe he wasn't holding his gun properly or like the incident with the crow, wasn't it? When I'm... Um, Brandon Lee died because apparently his live ammo and one of the guns there. These things just kind of happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we've also got Private Hudson, played by the late Bill Paxton, who's a bit of a legend. And just have to give a shout out to Bill Paxton because he is the only man that I know of that has been killed by an alien, a Terminator, and a Predator. So he had a bit of a shit <laughs> decade in movies, dying at every fucking movie he was in. But yeah, hell of a good actor. 
He did, and apparently he ad-libbed quite a lot of his lines in this film. But some of the iconic lines, including the Game Over line, wasn't actually in the original script, and he ad-libbed that. And that's one of the absolute classic lines of movie history, not just this film. And also, there's 25 uses of the word fuck in this film, and 18 of them are said by Bill Paxton. And he also yeah he's brilliant he also um apologized to carrie hen the, the lady or girl who played newt at the time for the swearing but she said it was fine because she didn't really understand the words so every time he swore he, he apologized to her oh bless what a guy i bet you would not like you think this like when you watch movies especially when you're a bit more of a fan of movies and the, what goes into them like i was thinking if i was an actor like Obviously, he couldn't now, but someone like Bill Paxton must have been a great time to work with. Like, he must have been like so much fun on set for anyone. Yeah, he puts everything into his roles, doesn't he? I mean, he's brilliant in this. He's, he's like, he's he's the sort of Lambert of aliens, isn't he? The one who's a bit more like, let's get the fuck out of here. Yeah, he he sort of starts off all cocky, and then, like you say, he kind of becomes a real, a, like a bit of a realist, doesn't he? And yeah, like I say, he pretty much turns into Lambert. Yeah, um, he does. Yeah. And then we've got um, Private Vasquez. Now, this is quite interesting. Um, so she, Vasquez is played by an actress called Jeanette Goldstein, who's been in loads of movies, uh, like uh, Lethal Weapon, for example. But she plays a Latino character, and I like Vasquez. She's proper badass. But, like, <laughs> Jeanette Goldstein is, like, the whitest person. Like, she's from California, and yet she's, like, done up in sounds and all done up like a Latino character, but she's, like, kind of, like, white. <laughs> it's just really weird. Yeah, it's strange that, isn't it? And that's another thing. I only, I was again doing a bit of research on this this week, and I, I read that, and I was like, why? I mean, Latino actresses must have been out there. Why didn't they cast someone? Obviously, they had her totally in mind for this. I used to have a bit of a thing for Vasquez when I was little. I don't know why, but she's, she's quite masculine. But <laughs> I used to think, I mean, she is badass. But yeah, I used to have a little thing for her. Do you know what? Funny enough, watching um, Aliens as I did earlier this week, she reminded me even though it's obviously more modern, but she, there's something Cara June about her, isn't there? Or there's something Vasquez about Cara June from The Mandalorian. They mm. just kind of crossed over. I think it might just be, again, because they did her up with that kind of kind of Latino look and just obviously being a bit of a tough chick badass. But I just saw some similarities yeah. there between those two. Yeah, there is. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I didn't make that connection, but yeah, you're totally right. And then last but not least, we've got Bishop, who is in fact an android, played by Lance Henriksen. And something quite interesting here is um, both, well, Bill Paxton, Jeanette Goldstein and Lance Henriksen, a year later, all starred together in a movie called Near Dark. It's a vampire movie. It's definitely worth checking out if you're into your horrors. Um, but yeah, they went on to all team up together for a movie. Oh, I didn't know that. I've not, not heard of that film. But um, yeah, and, and in this as well, Bishop being the android, it's not the big reveal that we had in Alien. You find out very early on that he's an android, and obviously Ripley, after what happened, understandably, he's not particularly happy about having a android on board or a board or synthetic person, as he calls himself. Yeah, and that adds a good kind of like hook to the movie, doesn't it? Because all the way through, like Ripley just doesn't trust Bishop at all. She's like obviously wary of him. Mr. JT said after, you know, Ash fucking trying to choke her next to a picture of some fried eggs, I'd be fucking worried as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then obviously exposing the fact he's got pasta and anal beads inside him. You know, she's obviously very wary of him. <laughs> yeah, right. It could be a whole different movie. But um, but no, he's a great character. But yeah, I like the fact that it had that hook all the way through. And you're always kind of thinking as the viewer is, right, you're like, right, is he going to be a fucking... Because there's a bit later on, isn't there, which we'll get to, where you think, right, he's fucked her over now. He is actually a, an evil android as opposed to being a good one. 
Yeah, you're always a bit wary of him, aren't you? But we won't spoil it too much. I'm sure you know what happens in the end. It all comes good. It does. So the movie opens with a slow crawl. We see the title Aliens appear on screen. We see the Narcissus space shuttle and we move inside to get a look at the interior. The doors begin to be cut open and the salvage crew step in and locate a pod containing Ripley and Jones. The salvage team take Ripley to Gateway, a station of some kind where she receives medical attention. Upon waking up, a suited man enters carrying Jones. He introduces himself as Carter Burke and says, I'm with the company, but uh, don't let that fool you. I'm actually an okay guy. He informs her that she has been in hypersleep for 57 years. Ripley is shocked at this reveal and begins to feel uncomfortable. Jones begins to hiss and she begins screaming in agony. The medical crew rush in to restrain her and she begs them to kill her. She pulls up her shirt and an alien is beginning to push through her stomach, but she suddenly awakens. She finds Jones laying on the bed next to her and hugs him. It was just a nightmare. Ripley is sat then in an atrium area and Berg enters carrying some files. Ripley is anxious to hear news of her daughter. Burke sits down and hands her a folder and informs her that Amanda McLaren, which is a married name, has passed away. Ripley sees a picture of an old woman and bursts into tears. What do you make to the uh, start of this one then, JT? Yeah, it's quite a good start, isn't it? um, When I was watching it again yesterday, I was thinking, why has the pod that Ripley and Jones are in, why has it got loads of condensation and stuff on it? But I guess if they'd been out there for 57 years, anything could have happened just seemed a bit strange that it was in a controlled ship, you know, where you would think things wouldn't be able to get in, like atmosphere or whatever. Um, but yeah, that was just a small little point. I remember when I first watched this and the alien starts to come out of Ripley when she's having that nightmare, and I was like, fucking hell, this is happening really quick and getting a bit scared, and then obviously she's dreaming. Um, it's a good start, actually, and it, it just carries pretty much straight on from where we left off, doesn't it? There's no sort of gaps to fill in. It's, it just carries on. It does, yeah. And again, that nightmare sequence, that's quite an ongoing thing with the series now, isn't it? Like the fact that once you encounter the aliens, everyone just has nightmares about them, which I would imagine you fucking would. They're scary as hell. Well, See it on TV and you have, have nightmares. Yeah, I'd say I have nightmares about them and I am just watch the films and I've had countless dreams about bloody xenomorphs. They tend to pop up in my dreams sometimes randomly. I wouldn't say I have nightmares anymore, but quite often the xenomorph makes an appearance in my dreams. Really, really weird. One thing I noticed about Jonesy as well in these sort of sequences in the um, wherever they've docked, I can't remember what it's called now, but he's quite placid these days, isn't he? I guess he's been asleep for 57 years, but he seems he seems a bit more chilled out in Alien. He's constantly running around and they're fucking chasing after him. Yeah, yeah. It's like you say, maybe he's just like, maybe my cat would probably sleep for 57 years if you gave her half a chance. <laughs> but um, yeah, he's just pretty laid back, whereas like you say, in the original, he's a bit of a handful, isn't he? And he, he ends up getting after crew killed because they go looking for him and then get munched by the fucking alien. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And just another point before we move on to what happens next. The picture you see of Ripley's daughter, which obviously isn't in the normal version, it's only in the extended version, that's actually her real-life mother. I didn't know if you knew that. I didn't know that, but I'll tell you what, I picked um, a couple of bits up about this section that I was only really kind of thinking of because obviously I was watching it a bit more of an analytical eye this time. So Amanda, right. So first of all, in the first movie, there's no mention whatsoever that Ripley has a daughter, which is not an issue. Obviously you just assume that these people probably do have families when they get home. So the daughter thing was kind of introduced in this movie, but she says that she was going to be home for Amanda's 11th birthday. And she's been in hypersleep for 57 years. So that means that like Amanda is probably about 67, roughly, when she died. Um, or maybe younger, yeah. which is not a particularly old age, is it? And the woman in the picture 
is quite an old looking woman. I mean, she looks a bit like Mary Berry, really. Um, and I just think she, she does, looks older. Yeah. <laughs> she looks older in in the picture than what she obviously the age that it kind of deduces or when she might have died. And I just thought that was a little bit odd. Yeah, um, I think Burke says when he says she died, I think he gives a date. I think he says age sixty six. I'm sure when I watched it yesterday, he said that. Um, I might have to be corrected there. And I thought that was a bit young. And also, yeah, I thought the same thing that she'd never mentioned having a daughter before. And I thought about mentioning that. And interesting, you did. Because I then thought the same thing, probably why would she have mentioned her daughter? I mean, we don't see the whole backstory of this crew, do we? We just see them when they're woken up to go and investigate the signal. So we don't know what's been talked about before that. They've obviously been on the ship for a bloody long time. But yeah, I did I did sort of think that, that why has this never been mentioned before? But then why should it have been, I guess? Yeah. Um, and now, that obviously, the Amanda Ripley character is a bit bigger in the why the law, um, thanks to alien isolation. We know that she obviously encountered the alien herself and worked for the company. So in a way, you could think that the folder that Burke's given her could just be all bullshit. You know, that's not what happened to Amanda. We don't know the end of her story yet. But I just thought that was a little bit, um, just a bit strange, really, that her age, she wasn't actually that old. Yeah, I mean, th- this whole scene isn't in the original cut. So that might make a bit more sense. It was added in as an extra scene. Obviously, it was filmed in the first place, but that's maybe why they cut it out originally. Yeah, quite potentially so. Um, so then we cut to the Board of Inquiry meeting where Ripley is being grilled by a bunch of Whalen Utani suits about the destruction of the Nostromo. They're focusing on, focusing on the financial costs and starting um, to log and stating that the log corroborates some of her story and that they sat down in the planet that was unsurveyed at the time for reasons unknown. Ripley protests, saying that for not reasons unknown, it was under company orders to find the thing that destroyed her crew and the ship. Ripley is stripped of her flight officer status and ordered to complete psych evaluations. Ripley implores the board to check out LV-426, but they state they don't need to, as they have colonists living on the planet for years who have never encountered any hostile creatures. Ripley is shocked to hear this. This is a bit of... um a scene and um where it kind of just sets up because as um, the next scene that comes up which we'll talk about in a minute again wasn't in the original cut from what i've read which is a shame because i think it obviously it shows hadley's hope before obviously the whole alien attack happens but again this just kind of shows like how seedy and how just sleazy this company is aren't they they're just using any excuse to kind of throw ripley under the bus yeah and the woman grilling us like got that fag and it's just the long ash on it and stuff and she just looks a bit like i don't know she's not a very nice person is she no no they, they are just a typical fucking again this is the 80s now but they are kind of modeled on like the kind of wall street or like lawyer type assholes aren't they they're all just they have these fucking even though it's the future and nowadays we've got like fucking phones that carry everything they've got these massive suitcases and folders and shit going <laughs> on big shoulder pads and their jackets but yeah they're a bunch of fucking assholes yeah, they are, and I'm glad it doesn't focus on them too much because they're quite annoying. You, you see about as much as you need to of them, don't you, really? Yeah, there is actually... I always used to think there's a bit of a plot hole here, but it has now been fixed. So, remember in Alien, obviously, they were awoken by the SOS, which obviously turned out not to be an SOS, it was a warning, but they were awoken by the signal from the derelict ship on LV-426. Now, yep. obviously, this movie is obviously set 57 years later, and the alien encounter doesn't happen until obviously a little bit down the line. So for 57 years, they've obviously probably might have sent ships back and forth that would have picked up on that signal, no doubt. 
And even when they were building the survey, the, the hub, building Hadley's Hope, and all the people were coming in, I always thought it was strange that how can no one has picked up on this SOS signal that they managed to find when they're in the ass end of space, let alone being on the same bloody <laughs> planet. But actually, in Alien Isolation, there's a scene where a crew go to that planet under company orders. And actually, no, they pick up on it. They're a salvage crew, and they just go and investigate, similar to the Nostromo team. And one of them goes in and finds the beacon and actually switches it off. But up until then, I always thought, wow. you know, how would they not? Because that's actually a canonical part of the story now. But it's like, why would these people not pick up on the signal if they're on the same bloody planet? Yeah, I, I didn't know that about isolation. Because as you know, um, I've tried to play it a couple of times and it just had to stop. It's too fucking much. So I didn't know that. I've always thought that as well, that they've had, like say, they surveyed this planet to fuck before they built on it. They'd had to. They'd have found the beacon. They'd have found the derelict ship, wouldn't they, really, you'd think? Absolutely, yeah. Because obviously, I know there are Wayland yutani company doing it, and we know why Wayland are sending people there. But the people are unsuspecting, aren't they? They would have just picked up on it and gone to investigate, which is what the company wants them to do anyway. But yeah, I just always thought that was a bit strange, but that's actually a plot hole that's been fixed for anyone who ever thought the same thing. Well, I did. So, yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. So, we now actually get a look at the colony Hadley's Hope. The environment is still hostile. However, the air is now breathable, and there is a very industrial-looking complex housing a number of families and workers. We meet a guy called Simpson. Yeah, Simpson, eh? Who is discussing a grid <laughs> reference he has had ordered, he's been ordered to investigate from someone back on Earth. So, he has sent a mom-and-pop survey team to check it out. We see the survey team approaching a derelict ship. They have two kids with them who are arguing as the younger sister is better at hide and seek as she is able to crawl through the vents. The mum and dad head in to investigate the ship. Time goes by and the daughter turns to her brother saying she was worried and as, as the parents have been gone so long. The door swings open and the mum climbs in and starts hailing an SOS to Hadley's Hope. The girl looks out and sees her dad laying on the ground with a face hugger attached to him and begins to scream. Now this whole sequence wasn't in the original, I don't think. At least a bit... Um, where we see Simpson in the actual complex. And I think it's good to kind of see what this place is actually like prior to the Marines turning up. Yeah, same. I don't think any of this scene was in it. The whole bit you've just described, I don't think the bit with the face hugger and obviously Newt as we come to know her, none of that was in it. And also, I don't know if it's in this scene or another one, because there's another little Hadley's Hope scene. Did you know that Melissa Joan Hart plays one of the kids in it, the girl who played Sabrina the Teenage Witch? No. She's in, in it. I think she might be the kid who goes past on the little tricycle. Do you know the one I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. Because I always thought that tricycle, I, I know you haven't seen it, but you're probably aware of the this, this scene. It's quite infamous and it's in a Slipknot video as well. But the little tricycle he's riding, the way it's shot and the way the camera follows him, that just reminds me of Danny riding his tricycle around the Overlook Hotel in The Shining. And I don't know if that's like a nod that James Cameron did purposely. But yeah, I definitely know the scene that you mean. Yeah, possibly. And I, I, I'm aware of that tricycle. Yeah, like I say, I haven't seen the film, but I know of that tricycle. Yeah, I don't know if that's her. Or not. I can't remember if it's a boy or a girl on the tricycle, but certainly in one of those scenes, she's one of the kids. Um, so the guy who plays Simpson, it's <laughs> just a little bit of um, <laughs> trivia for you here. So it's a guy called Mac McDonald. Now, he's not credited in this movie strictly because the scene was reintroduced later. Um, it's a, it was intentionally a deleted scene for the theatrical. But he's also the guy who's the captain of the Red Dwarf. For anyone who's ever watched Red Dwarf, he's the captain of that ship. Oh, fucking hell. Wow, that's a good fact. I didn't know that. Yeah, gutted, wouldn't it, that your only scene in this film was cut and then you weren't credited. <laughs> You'd be like, I was in Aliens. People were like, no, you weren't. You're not in the credits, mate. 
yeah, right, if you're not in the credits, that doesn't count, does it, whether you're on screen or not? Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, I always thought this is a little bit convenient that, you know, they just happened to discover the derelict ship and awaken the aliens around the same time that Ripley wakes up. Um, but on obviously paying a bit more attention and looking into it, I just assume that now, like, when Ripley's woken up, obviously they've gotten her report of the events, and now they know where the location, or roughly the grid reference for the derelict ship. So that's obviously why someone from Wayland Utani has sent that grid reference to have them go and check it up, make sure they encounter the ship this time round. Um, but other than that, I always used to think, you know, fancy just discovering it just around the time Ripley wakes up so she can come and save the day or something. <laughs> yeah, it would be another one of those movie coincidences that we see all the time, wouldn't it? It would, yeah. And once again, these I know these people are salvagers and stuff, and this is what they do for a living. But again, they're so fucking stupid because that derelict ship does not look inviting one way or the other. There's nothing about that ship that looks pleasant. It's worse than when Kane went in there and he fucking started sticking his face in all the eggs. Like these two dickheads. I'd <laughs> yeah. have found it and be like, right, we found it. That'd do. Let's go home. Yeah, exactly that. But it's the same in most of these films, isn't it? You, they just go one step too far. And you're like, why did you even do that? It's like when in a horror film when they walk into a room and they don't turn the lights on. First fucking thing I'm doing is finding that light switch when I go into a darkened room. Yeah, right. For fucking Michael Myers or fucking some sizzle dick <laughs> fucking like Jason Voorhees jumps out and kills you. Yeah, you need the lights on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Burke and Gorman knock on Ripley's door and say that they need her help. She slams the door in their face, but Burke proceeds by telling that they have lost contact with the colonists on LV-426. Ripley opens the door and lets them in. Burke outlines the plans to send in a team of colonial marines to investigate and exterminate any aliens if they find them, and he wants Ripley along as an advisor, but Ripley refuses. Later, Ripley awakens from another nightmare in cold sweat. She calls Burke on the intercom and asks if the purpose of the mission is to really wipe them out and not bring them back for study. Burke says he has her word. She agrees to go on the mission. And this like, little scene here is just, it kind of sets up like before the movie really starts, and when you know, like, obviously, what's going to come a bit later on, like, you just think Burke is such a little fucking slime ball. Yeah, he when um when he he calls Ripley on whatever it's the little screen they've got, and well, no, she calls him, sorry, and he wake he wakes up. He just looks like obviously he's just been woken up, but there's just something unlikable about him, something that I just didn't like from the start. And obviously, you're not supposed to like him, but yeah, he's um he is a bit of a slimy little git, isn't he? He is, yeah, and I think you know. I'm sure the actor's a really nice guy, but it's just that sort of actor that he's got that certain look. When you look at him, he's got like a face only a punch could love. And you just yeah. think, yeah, you fucking little bastard. But <laughs> fair play to Ripley. I mean, you know she's got like obviously having nightmares and stuff, but actually agreeing to go back, um, obviously to face these aliens, it must be a hell of a hefty decision, considering obviously she's still dealing with the grief of like she's woken up and now like her entire life is gone. Like not only has she lost her crew fighting the aliens, but she's woken up like decades later and her fucking daughter's dead now yeah i mean you can kind of see probably why she did it they say you should go and face your fears um i mean i don't like fucking tarantulas and they say what you should do is hold one but mm, i'm all right thanks but you know some people that's the way they get over things isn't it by facing their fears and now with the fact that amanda has gone and she hasn't got anything left then why not i guess not that you'd catch me done it doing it at all but fair play yeah yeah fair play just you know she's got nothing left to lose and um also one oh. thing um what was that that was our old good friend siri just making an appearance in the background she hasn't been around for a while 
<laughs> Fucking hell. It was only a matter of time, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. <laughs> and also, just a little note here before we move on, is this is the last time we get to see Jones, because um, she has to leave him behind. Little shithead, she calls him, doesn't she? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> she does, yeah. Which, to be fair, I can relate, obviously, being a cat owner. But, yes, yeah, so just the way like she says, you little shithead, you're staying here. And the camera, and he just sort of stares at her, like, don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Typical cat. He, he don't care as long as he's got food and a bed. He don't give a shit, does he? <laughs> nah, he's all right. You don't want to <laughs> fuck around with any aliens again. Nah, he's so, enough of that. <laughs> so this is where the movie kind of really starts. And I got to admit, like even though I love a bit of build up, and I really appreciate it now in my older age. When I was a kid, I couldn't wait for the movie to get to this scene, or like this is where like all the like the fun stuff in a way kind of starts. Um, so we see a large space vessel orbiting LB four two six and getting slow shot of the interior areas. Cryo chambers line the wall. The lights come on and the cryo tubes begin to open, revealing the crew. They awaken to find the floor is freezing, but Apona's in no mood to fetch anyone their slippers. <laughs> they get dressed and head for breakfast, where Apona's informing his men that this is a rescue mission. The Marines comment on Gorman choosing to sit away from the rest of the military personnel, to which Private Frost notes, Guys definitely got a corn cob up his ass. <laughs> After some fun and games with a knife at Hudson's expense, it is revealed that a member of the crew, Bishop, is an android. Ripley protests, saying that Burke never said anything about an android being on board. Bishop seems confused by this, and Burke relays the malfunctioning of Ash to Bishop, who reassures Ripley that he has a behaviour limiter that means he cannot harm, or by means of action, allow a human being to be harmed. Ripley is not convinced and tells Bishop to stay away from her. The official mission briefing begins with Gorman outlaying that they are receiving no communication from the colony and a xenomorph may be involved. Ripley briefs the Marines on the event of her previous voyage, which no one seems to take seriously apart from Hicks. The Marines begin prep for the mission before gathering weapons and gear. They enter the APC and then the drop ship and head down to LV-426. Now, this is like such a stark contrast to the first movie, because when they awaken, they're like all kind of lazy, like as they like everyday blokes, mm. slowly getting up with saggy tits and beer bellies, whereas obviously <laughs> these guys are a bit more in action aren't they like they actually look like marines they're in shape and a point you made about like dallas as soon as he wakes up he's got a beer in his hand it cracks me up every time that a pwn wakes up and he's got a cigar ready straight away he just shoves it <laughs> straight in his mouth for action yeah it's something we've always said in that if the alien cocooned a pwn and sort of made a made a new alien out of him it would have a cigar in its mouth wouldn't it <laughs> but yeah I, I picked up on that as well and i've actually got it written down here that these guys are all in shape. There's no flabby tits at all, really, on that crew, is there? No, there's not. And just in this sequence, this section alone of the movie, there's so many quotable bits. Like you've got, like, you introduced to them all the kind of, like, the crew bit by bit, the Marines. Then there's that classic line, isn't it, where, you know, if ask yes, you ever been mistaken for a man? No, have you? <laughs> yeah, I th- mean, th- this film is immensely quotable anyway, isn't it? I mean, a pony could write a book on his quotes alone. He's not even in the film that much. Um, yeah, that apparently that quote about have you ever been mistaken for a man that was taken from another film. It was I can't remember what the film was now, but I read that earlier. That that's not an original quote. It's lifted from an older film. No, oh, fair. That's cool. That came. I'd be interested to know what movie that is. I will um, find out. <laughs> awesome. Um, another thing, it kind of like sets a bit of foreshadowing here, which I quite like when movies do this. So one thing it points out is that Gorman isn't really part of this kind of group, although he's a military and he's like the ranking officer. He's not really like part of the crew, is he? Like he doesn't like sit with them. He doesn't gel with them. They don't seem too keen on him or anything. Yeah. He's, well, he's a bit of a dick, isn't he Gorman? As one of the famous quotes from the film kind of relays at the end, 
but yeah, he was never one of the one of the boys, was he? No, because he just sat up in the far table, like completely ignoring him and being a bell end. And then when they're actually doing the um, like the briefing again, that's just full of great quotes. But um, it kind of subtly introduces, or not so subtly introduces, the power loader, which becomes like a big feature for a certain sequence later on in the movie. But the fact that it's just kind of there as a tool, and you don't realise what you know how iconic or how important that thing's going to become later on. Yeah, I thought they looked quite good as well watching it again yesterday. There's one bit where it's kind of walking around in the background. You can tell it's not real, but I thought they were done quite well. Yeah, no, they definitely look interesting. I, th- I wonder if, like, because obviously for Ripley's one that she's using, they must have built that in some way and actually made it move around. Like, it makes yeah. me wonder, you know, why they haven't actually, you know, built anything like that in real life because it looks quite practical. Well, I'm actually just scrolling through some bits here trying to find what where that quote was taken from. Um apparently something i read again earlier they 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 did build something and they were actually going to be used there were some commercial companies that were interested in actually buying these things off the studio but they weren't fully working there's a lot of stuff that wasn't proper so they were kind of half built half whatever not cgi but yeah but they they were 50 to 75% real working machines yeah awesome yeah i always thought that it looked like a something that should be made. Because like, there's a lot of influences yeah. from sci-fi. And speaking of influences, um, a lot of the vehicles and designs of this movie have had a massive influence on a lot of movies, but also a lot of video games, like Halo, for example. Um, it's literally robbed aliens of like, all its designs, like the Pelicans from Halo and a lot of the vehicles. They're all just completely lifted from aliens. And there's nothing bad. They even acknowledge it and said, yeah, yeah, we pretty much just drew everything from aliens but it just shows that the influence has been felt down the line and i know call of duty as well has used loads of the lines that we're talking about like the one-liners and the catchphrases that are riddled yeah. throughout this movie like call of duty pretty much writes their script using them i was about to mention call of duty i thought you probably would pick up on it i didn't think you wouldn't but yeah call of duty particularly the first modern warfare like that first sequence has got loads of quotes from aliens in it yeah, not even like the whole like to keep this handy sort of thing. It's just just shows like how the knock on effect of this movie and the influence it's had um, over the years in various media. So the dropship approaches the complex and does a flyover. They drop off the APC, which drives the Marines to the door. The Marines enter the complex and search it, only to find evidence of a conflict but no signs of life. Gorman deems the area to be clear and enters. Ripley and Burke follow. To which Hudson sarcastically notes, he's coming in. I feel safe for already. <laughs> <laughs> they search the medical and science facility and find containers filled with face huggers, which confirms the colonists have encountered the xenomorphs. Frost picks up movement on his tracker. As the team move down a corridor, something jumps out. Drake fires in surprise, but fortunately, Hicks is quick enough to push his gun upwards as the movement is caused by a young girl, Newt. After questioning Newt, who informs him that her name is Rebecca, that everyone is dead and the Marines won't make any difference, Hudson informs the team he has located the colonists. They are all at the goddamn town meeting under the atmosphere processor. A pwn saddles up his team and they head out to investigate. Now this sequence I think is pretty good because it builds, like when they're searching the complex particularly, it manages to capture a lot of that kind of like tension and atmosphere that the first movie had, like because you think, right, an alien's going to jump out, an alien's going to jump out, and it never happens, but even so, like the tension is there. Yeah, you get the jump scare with Newt, obviously, when she comes out. 
the trackers as well are so much better than that fucking Hoover thing that Ash made in the first film. <laughs> Obviously, we're fi- 57 years down the line now, but just the tension of when it starts beeping, they pick something up on the tracker. It's just like, oh, your hair's on the back of your neck start going up a bit, don't they? Yeah, they do. And again, that's another thing. I swear, Modern Warfare 2 from Call of Duty, you get that tracker and it literally looks exactly the same, don't you? It's like on your gun, like tracking all the signals and stuff. Yeah, um, you do. Yeah. But- but even the sound effect, that's so iconic. Like even some of the video games, even though most of them are shit, unfortunately. But when you get those sound effects from the tracker, it's just so iconic the way it bleeps. It's quite eerie. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, that's like I say, something that's always stuck with me. When that little tracker goes off, you're like, oh, something's coming. And don't you think that, because um, obviously up until now, they're not really believing that aliens or, or like the xenomorph specifically is a thing that Ripley's described. But once they start finding those face huggers in those kind of um, those cubes where they're being stored, surely like people would have started being like, okay, maybe some of the story's a bit right, and a few a bit of tension might have started rising there. But they all just seem to take it in their stride, don't they? I suppose they're just a little bit arrogant, maybe, or just a bit overconfident. But I'd have started being like, hang on a minute, if they're real, maybe the rest of Ripley's, you know, fucking story's real. Yeah, I thought that as well, and when it sort of goes up against the glass and it all oh, looks like love at first sight when Burke's looking at it they are just a bit casual about this I'll be like what the fuck is that but then there's another bit going back to when they're on the main ship when they're talking about going to a planet and some alien poontang or something so have they encountered alien life before and that's why they're a bit blasé about it I don't know maybe yeah because it's getting for the primary part of this movie like well like the franchise we only ever see the xenomorphs obviously we know that the engineers are out there as well so maybe there are other species like they they go on bug hunts don't they so maybe there are just references to different types of species obviously nothing quite as deadly or dramatic as the xenomorph but yeah like you say maybe they they have encountered other things and at this point because they've only seen the face like they think they're just kind of stompable yeah i mean i've always wondered when they're talking about that uh, in that when they're eating and, you know, have they been on other missions where they've encountered some kind of life? Because, as you say, they're very blasé about these things. I'd be, again, I'd be like, let's get the fuck out of here. What's this? Yeah, definitely. And just to touch on one one other sequence before we move on, for the majority of this movie, much like the original, like it looks spot on. It's really well shot. It holds up like on like the Blu-rays and everything for the most part. But that scene where the dropship's coming down, that does look a little bit ropey now, doesn't it? It's like a little model ship with kind of a screen of smoke around it. And that that's the only bit I think like special effects wise, that looks a little bit ropey in this one. Mm, I've even got this down in my notes here. The shuttle landed on the planet. Doesn't look as good as the original alien, despite being, despite being seven years later. Yeah. I picked up on it. I've always thought it, but watching it again yesterday, it kind of emphasized my thoughts. It, yeah, it does look a bit ropey now. Yeah. I wonder like, cause they are going to do a 4k version of this at some point. Um, they, James Cameron will oversee it, but I wonder if he'll do a bit of manipulation to touch that scene up, whether he'll just leave it as it is. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what they do when they do the 4k. Yeah. I kind of hope he does because I only watched this on a 32 inch TV and just, it was on a Blu-ray and it, it looked a bit shit. So I imagine watching it, if I watch it with my old man on his six foot screen, it's going to look fucking awful. <laughs> so, the Marines arrive at the atmosphere processor, proceed inside, leaving Burke, Gorman, Ripley and Newt in the APC as Overwatch. They begin working their way down through the sub-levels, and after several prompts from a pwn to check those corners, they arrive in some form of hive. As the Marines proceed inside, Ripley inquires to what type of ammo they're using, and points out the Marines are right under the atmosphere processor. 
Burke concurs and notes to Gorman that gunfire could set off a thermonuclear reaction. Gorman instructs Apone that there will be no firing and he needs to collect ammo from everyone. Vasquez and Drake have a hidden stash of ammo and reload their guns. The Marines continue on, armed only with sidearms and flamethrowers. They encounter a woman hung up on the wall who awakens and begs to be killed before a chestburster erupts from inside her. Apone kills her with a flamethrower. Hudson's motion tracker begins to beep, and he reports that he has numerous movement signals closing in. The Marines form up, but can see no threats. Watching from the APC, Ripley informs Gorman to pull his team out, but he ignores her. From out of the walls, the aliens begin attacking and killing Marines in the blink of an eye. The few Marines who, um, who have weapons begin to retaliate, but to little effect, until Drake and Vasquez open fire with their smart guns. The Marines are cut off, surrounded by aliens. This is kind of one of those things where, like, as they're going in, again, the tension's rising. The kind of choreography of the like the military side of things is really good. You can tell that they tell they have training. It looks really authentic, but you kind of you feel sorry for them because like they're always on the back foot. Like they added the acid for blood in the original movie to make the crew have even more of a disadvantage. Now they've got these marines, and I was like, right, we're going to take all your weapons away from you. So now they're at a fucking disadvantage as well. Yeah, and I can totally see why Vasquez and uh, Drake and they had the extra ammo and stuff and they went straight and put it because I would just be like fuck it I'm taking the risk I mean at that point maybe not so much because you hadn't seen anything but the minute those things started moving and attacking I'm taking a risk if this place blows up I'm going with it or I'm going to get killed by an alien you know either or I'm probably going to die um, so yeah and also that chestburster that comes out it's got little arms hasn't it unlike the first one I was, saying, I was reading the other day they put little arms onto it and it kind of pulls itself out of her chest. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that. Because um, obviously animatronics are probably much more advanced now. But yeah, Cameron liked the idea that the alien would be able to like, literally tear itself out. And I think, you know, it works really well because that chestburster scene is brutal. I, I, wouldn't, I don't know, it's, it's really bloody and the chestburster looks gruesome as hell. I don't know if it's quite as gory or as hardcore as the original chestburster scene. But yeah, it's definitely quite impactful. Um, probably not because we knew what was going to happen, whereas the first one we weren't so so aware of how and what was going to happen. But I think it it looks better. Obviously, it's seven years later, so you'd expect it to. But yeah, I like the way it just kind of rips itself out and pulls itself out with the little arms before it gets flamethrowered. Yeah, and one thing I really like here, although I'll touch on like my thoughts on the, the new design for the aliens or the xenomorphs in this case. Um, but I do like the fact that like the first couple of times you watch it, especially I think her name's Croa, the first woman who dies basically, like they they got the tracker going off and Hudson's like flipping out saying he's got like movement coming out of his ass or something. And she's like <laughs> staring at a wall and then she turns around and obviously faces the camera and then the alien just emerges from this wall and grabs her and fucking splices her. But the first couple of times you watch that, you can't see that alien. It's so well camouflaged, isn't it? A bit like in the original movie, the way it used to camouflage and it was always on screen in plain view if you knew exactly where to look now i can kind of see it curled up but i just love how they're all just kind of emerged into the walls and the ceiling and they're there all the time but you just don't notice it until they start moving yeah you're right um and obviously she didn't know what she's looking for we kind of know so we spot it but i imagine if you were down there it's dark in the heat of the moment you wouldn't have noticed it at all because it is very well camouflaged one thing i will say about this scene it's brilliant i love it but a few of the characters just die pretty much off screen, don't they? Quite a few of the crew die in this scene. It's quite a brutal, it's probably the most deaths of the whole film in, in the one scene, isn't it? 
yeah yeah like a good chunk of them like there's they've all got like their names they're not like just soldier one soldier two they are all named characters but like you've got like a guy called like Wabowski or something then you've got like crower and a few others and yeah like i say they all just kind of croak it and you can see like ripley and gorman and that and they're watching on the monitors because all the marines have like cameras on their shoulders and you just see like flat lines coming out one thing i will say though like you know like gorman's like i need you to collect magazines from everyone which is obviously mm. for the plot point because they give it all to Frost and Frost dies, so pretty much all the ammo goes with him. But these are like hardcore trained soldiers. Surely they can be trusted not to fire under orders. They'd be like, put your safeties on. I don't want any firing in there. You know, why would you actually take all the magazines? Because if shit did hit the fan, like you said, you know, Drake and Vasquez, you know, soldiers would want to defend themselves, wouldn't they? Or at least go down fighting. They're not going to fucking stand there. Because even Frost is like, what are we supposed to use, man? Harsh language? And I just thought it was a bit yeah. strange. It's clearly something that's for the plot point, but would it really happen? Yeah, you're right, actually. And I feel a bit sorry for Frost. I mean, obviously, most a lot of them die in this scene, but he dies a pretty shit death. He just kind of gets blown up and falls down the shaft, doesn't he? Doesn't even really go out in a good way. Yeah, because I swear the woman, the first one he dies, she gets pulled up by the alien. And obviously, in the panic, she sets off her flamethrower, and that cooks Frost. And like you say, he just goes flying over like, a fucking shaft or something and falls to his doom. But of course, the worst death here is a pwn because he's busy trying to get fucking sends out a Gorman <laughs> on the radio and an alien just drops down and fucking kills him. It's a bit of a flimsy death for a pwn, isn't it? <laughs> it is really because, I mean, he's he's probably one of the main characters up until this point, isn't he? He's had quite a lot to say and everything. He's had some quotable lines and then he, he does go out of a bit of a whimper, doesn't he? And I'm not sure if this is... I wouldn't say it's shit acting by Al Matthews, but when he's sort of questioning what he's hearing, he's like, what, what? And he's, I don't know, obviously it's the heat of the moment, it's a hectic thing going on, but I've always thought that's not the best acting there, but it could just be me picking holes in it, I'm not sure. No, I mean, to be honest, I wouldn't be, I, I, I mean, obviously the military's the military, isn't it? I know they've got to like stay calm under pressure, but like, Gorman's like fucking useless. And he's like, they're going, I want to lay down to press and fire with the incinerators and fall back and all that. And then the opponent's like, hey, again, sir, I'll have that incinerator. Yeah. And he's just like, <laughs> I'd be more worried about these fucking demons coming out of the wall than listening to some fucking toffee-nosed twat sat back in a fucking APC talking shit. Yeah, this is one of the first times as well where you kind of see a little bit of the other side of Burke, isn't it? Where once he says, right, just fucking get the weapons and stuff, you know, he doesn't question it or anything. He's like, yep. So you kind of think, okay, this guy doesn't care a shit about these Marines. Yeah, exactly. It's fucking, it's just weird. It's a, it's a hell of an intense scene. And like you say, like, they just get fucking, they're these kind of badass soldiers and they've gone in and they just get absolutely fucking annihilated in the blink of an eye, pretty much, don't they? They don't even stand a chance against, obviously, you saw what one alien could do in the first movie against the crew and now, now you've got an entire bloody nest of them and they just absolutely slaughter these people. Yeah, and obviously they're in their own environment, aren't they? They've built this sort of hive, so, you know, they're, they're moving around in their own environment. So, yeah, they're fucked, the Marines, basically. So Ripley has now seen enough. She fires up the APC and drives through the complex at speed in an effort to save whoever is left. She crashes through the walls of the hive, and the survivors board the APC. After a frantic escape, they emerge outside. A few survivors try to process what has just happened. After arguing over their next move, Hicks takes Ripley's advice to dust off and nuke the site from orbit. He calls the dropship team to come and pick them up. We see the dropship crew, Pharaoh and Spunkmeyer, <laughs> <What are they? laughs> prepping for takeoff. Yeah. Spunkmeyer notices some slime as he is climbing aboard. While in flight, Pharaoh, who for some reason must be where M. Shadow's got his look from, because she's got like, the aviators and shit going on, 
Um, yeah, she does look like it. <laughs> well, in flight, Pharaoh hears a cockpit door open and turns to speak to Spunkmire, only to find an alien standing over her. The Marines watch it as the dropship approaches, but it soon begins to pitch and crash lands. The Marines run and take cover to narrowly avoid the exploding wreckage. After some outbursts from Hudson, Newt informs Ripley, we better get back because it'll be dark soon and they mostly come at night. Mostly. <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> and this is just one of those moments, isn't it? It's like they've just been absolutely wrecked in the hive. And things have gone from bad, and now they're about to get fucking worse. Because you've got to imagine how shit, you know, their, their hopes of escaping have just been completely dashed watching that fucking um, dropship explode in front of them. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's game over, man, isn't it? <laughs> Literally, yeah. <laughs> As our old friend says. But there's a couple of bits prior to this. You know, when um, they're coming out of the the hive in the APC, and the, the box is full on Gorman, they hardly fucking touch him, and it completely sparkles him. <laughs> Like this box just sort of glances off him very lightly, and the next thing he's fucking flat out, and then you see him later on with blood on his bandage. Yeah, he's um, like a fucking bandage so wrapped around his head. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's like a fucking egg carton <laughs> or something just donks him on the head, and he acts like he's just been fucking it with a baseball bat or something. Another thing that I've always wondered about, and it, again, it's me just picking this, but when the alien is on the dropship, why is it ventured out? of the hive and that and is just wandering around outside they don't tend to do that sort of thing they tend to stick where it's hot like in air ducts and stuff don't they and this one's obviously wandered off onto the dropship. well that's it yeah because if the aliens are on patrol or they're out and about they would have the marines would have encountered them by now but like from what we know of like the law and the nature of the aliens they tend to just kind of they just hive don't they until they're alerted to someone's presence or until that someone mm. annoys them they generally just obviously like sleep or hide somewhere. So yeah, like you say, this guy was just out for a fucking stroll and happened to see a bloody dropship. Um, <laughs> yeah, just going for a wander one night and just, oh, what's this? I'll go and have a look. Well, there's a couple of people on there. I'll take them out while I'm here. There's one thing here as well. Um, it's um, a bit of a behind the scenes thing that I thought was quite funny. So you know when Drake dies, because he's kind of like covering the rear, isn't he? And then Vasquez shoots an alien and the acid splashes on him, and then he turns in his kind of big dramatic death with the flamethrower lit, and he kind of yeah. sets fire to the APC. Now, yeah. to shoot that scene, they obviously had to set fire to parts of the set, but they set fire to the plastic bits, which started to cause, like, toxic smoke, which <laughs> started, like, choking all the fucking actors and that. And I, I remember watching an interview with Bill Paxton, and he was saying about this, and he was like, he heard Vasquez behind him, like Jeanette Goldstein, like saying, like, I can't breathe. And in his head, he was like, man, that's a really good bit of improv. And then he took a breath and started choking. And he felt like, oh, shit, actually, no one can breathe. So we had to kind of rush out <laughs> of the set. And I was like, fucking hell, surely a bit, I mean, health and safety wasn't what it is today back then. But surely someone would have thought, yeah, setting fire to industrial plastic's not the best idea, is it, in an enclosed area? Yeah, there's another bit following on from that that I read earlier, where they're in the APC and they're filming, where there was smoke and stuff, the actors were choking... So they had to actually take the roof off the thing they were using to film the scene because the actors were choking so much with all the smoking shit going on. So it's probably tied into what you just said. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, it probably is all part and parcel. And another bit here. Now, I'm not too sure if this is actually the case, but it's always bugged me. So there's a bit where Ripley's obviously driving and the alien jumps down on the front or an alien jumps down and like smashes through the glass. And it looks like loads of blood comes out of its mouth, but it's red blood. And it's like, well, the aliens have yep. green acid blood. And if that, the alien was bleeding, it would have splashed over Ripley and fucking killed her. But it kind of headbutts the glass and like, it looks like it's red blood splashing down. I was like, that's a bit random because 
a second later, she puts the brakes on, the alien falls forward, and she runs it over, and you see all the acid blood splashing out as the head gets crushed. But I'm like, why do they use red for that? And was it actually red blood, or was it like a trick of the light? And I'm not sure. I'm very glad you picked up on that, because it's something I've noticed every time as well, and I noticed it again yesterday. Thought exactly the same thing. What What is that? Is it blood? Because it's not Ripley's blood, is it? The alien doesn't have red blood, so what actually is it? Exactly the same thing. I've I've thought that pretty much every time I've seen this film. Um, so yeah, fuck knows. Yeah, yeah. It's just always ever since I was a kid. And I've mentioned it to loads of people, and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I've never thought of that. But just before we move on, there is a bit. This is like the only time Burke does something fucking useful. Is um because Ripley, like Gorman, sat there doing his fucking blubbering fish impression. He doesn't know what he's doing. So Ripley like runs off to start the APC and then Gorman tries to stop her and Burke kind of grabs Gorman and throws him down. He's like, no, you had your chance. And that's like the only time that Burke does anything fucking useful in this movie. Yeah, there's also one bit, just before we move on, when Ripley bursts through the doors and they, you know, whatever. And like, is, I think it's Hicks. He's like, you're just grinding metal on metal. He's down. He's down. He's down. He says it about a hundred times. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed that. As worse than fucking Parker trying to get him the freeze game. <laughs> you know, it is. Yeah, it's like he's got it on repeat. He says he's down about a hundred times. Yeah, yeah. I always thought that bit was quite funny. It's quite a drawn out scene as well. And he's like, it's almost like he's like doing a fucking porno. He's like, he's down. <laughs> it, 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 at one point, he stops about ten seconds and then he goes. He's down again. It's like, fucking hell. I think she's got the message. <laughs> fucking hell. Oh, dear. <laughs> so, after salvaging the wreckage, the Marines, who are taking shelter in a complex, take stock of their supplies and formulate a plan. Hicks reveals that it would take 17 days for a rescue to be launched. Hudson points out they aren't going to last 17 hours. The group decide to get um, some gun turrets on the main corridors and weld the door shut to try and give themselves some protection. Hicks also gives Ripley a crash course on how to use the pulse rifle. And he also gives her a tracking bracelet to wear so he can find her. But Ripley later puts his bracelet on Newt. The group also try to figure out the alien's capabilities, deducing that the colonists were moved to the hive the host for, as hosts for facehuggers, which come from eggs. But what is laying these eggs? Hudson theorizes that there might be an ant hive where one female runs the whole show, a queen. Ripley asks Bishop to destroy the specimens once he has finished studying them. Bishop says he was told by Burke that the remaining specimens were to be kept in stasis and returned to the company labs. Ripley confronts Burke, who informs her that the specimens are worth millions to the bioweapons divisions and they could both get very rich. Ripley is having none of it and says that she checked the log and found out that the orders that were given to the colonists to check out the coordinates from the ship came from him and he didn't even warn them of the danger, highlighting that Burke is responsible for the deaths of the colonists. Things get worse when Bishop points out the atmosphere processor has been breached. They now have only several hours before it explodes. Bishop volunteers to head outside and, con and connect remotely to the Sulaco and remote pilot a dropship down to the planet so they can escape. This is probably kind of, it sets up obviously the situation they're in, but it's kind of like the only reprieve they get now, isn't it? Because they pretty much get just bombarded by assault from aliens after this scene. Yeah, and when, when Bishop goes down that little tunnel, it's it's not a, quite the Dallas thing, is it? But when I first saw this, I was convinced something was going to come out, and obviously it doesn't. He gets there. There's only a couple of little clips of him crawling down this little narrow t narrow tunnel, isn't there? But I was like, something's going to come out. It's going to it's going to be another Dallas scene. But obviously, that never materialises. Do you know? There's actually 
there is a scene um, that never, I think they shot bits of it and it's in the screenplay, but he does encounter an alien, but it completely ignores him. It kind of stares at him and then ignores him, indicating that the aliens have the intelligence to detect organic life, I suppose. But yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm not a claustrophobic person as such, but the way he's kind of in that pipe and he's just kind of shuffling along on his shoulders, I fucking hate that. It just just looks so awkward. And if that was you and you weren't an android and an alien came for you, you wouldn't be able to do anything, would you? You'd be fucked. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to turn or anything. You're absolutely, yeah, fucked. But I like the way he says, I may be synthetic, but I'm not stupid when he volunteers to go down there. So, you know, good little line there. And that sort of, gives a more human side of him even though he's not human yeah i was going to say like bishop comes across he's um he's quite docile isn't he especially compared to ash he's like a bit of a loyal puppy mm. but he's very like because i know obviously we've um now we've got prometheus and we've been introduced to characters like david um who obviously we'll get to eventually um obviously you showed that the androids do have a lot of kind of like humanization about them and i really think lance Henriksen nails this performance like he's such a likable character and it's almost a shame when you know that Obviously, he's not really a threat or anything like that. But, you know, the way Ripley just fucking hates him just because he's an android to begin with. Yeah, yeah, he's he's very placid, isn't he? He's, he's pretty chilled out. And, um, yeah, he's a good character, old Lance Henriksen. He's a good actor anyway, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he is good. And this is also the part as well, like like we say, like the first and second movie, they kind of, in a way, stand apart from each other. But the lore for the aliens, how they kind of work the hive and all that stuff, that's kind of like Aliens 101 now. Like it's using all the like games, it's using all the extended universe and such. It all kind of begins here, doesn't it? Them talking about the hive mentality um, compared to the obviously the metamorphosis that we were going to have from the original Alien, and it just kind of sets up like that wider set of lore. And even like the design of the aliens themselves is quite different. They're smaller and faster in this compared to the larger, slower, more hulking alien in the original. Yeah, they are. I like the way the alien has kind of developed throughout the films, although Resurrection, which again we'll, we'll come to, um, not so much. But it's quite good the way it has slightly evolved each time. And obviously Cameron, like you say, made them more agile and more fast and sort of full on in this film, didn't he? The, the first film, the thing's really slow and menacing, whereas I think that's why this one's not so scary, because there's more of them and they're just they're not as menacing as the first one, although they're fucking evil and stuff. They're just not as sinister and menacing, are they? Yeah, and they attack kind of en masse, don't they? So you don't really have time to take in the effect that they have as a presence because there's just so many of them. And it's almost like it's so intense. You don't have time to really think about what's going on. You're just watching people like fight for their lives, really. Yeah. And one thing about this particular scene is obviously we find out that Bert's obviously the sleazy bastard. There's obviously must have gotten the information from Ripley and then told them to go and check out the location. But the acting, when Sigourney's, uh, Ripley's confronting Burke and said, you know, I've checked the file, I found out you're the one who's responsible for all these colonists dying and you didn't warn them. Like, her acting here, like, proper nails it. Like, she's so fucking pissed off. And the fact that she's quite a tall woman, she's, like, towering over Burke and, like, fucking shoves him against the wall. But you can tell how angry she is. Yeah, it it kind of, I think it shows how much these films mean to Scorny Weaver, probably why she didn't want to make a sequel at first because her character and, you know, the, probably the effort that she put into the first film, she didn't want it to be fucked up. But yeah, she puts her whole heart and soul into this, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. Like, it's her franchise at the end of the day, as far as I'm concerned. Much like Terminator is Arnie. Like, you can have, you know, it's not Alien yeah. about Ripley. Well, it's not um, Ripley about Sigourney Weaver, is it, really? You couldn't have anyone else playing this character. 
No, definitely not. And another little thing here that I quite like, um, just before we move on, is this kind of hints at like the kind of attraction or chemistry between Hicks and Ripley. Because when he's teaching her how to like use the pulse rifle, and then a bit later he gives her the sort of tracking bracelet, he like hands it to her, and he's like, doesn't mean we're engaged or anything. But you can see there's kind of a little something between them, and I quite like that. Yeah, definitely. That scene where he's showing her the pulse rifle, and that, that's not in the original cut, I don't think, is it? I'm not 100% sure. Well, they might have filmed an extended bit of it, but I'm sure that whole part's not in the original cut. I might have to go back and watch the theatrical. I know I've got it, um, cause it you know, the Blu-rays come in both versions. I might have to watch it to see how much has actually been. So like I say, I only ever remember watching this version. A little note on the, um, the pulse rifle and the smart gun that you might find interesting, JT. So obviously they're futuristic weapons, but the pulse rifle is actually a modified Thompson, which is a World War II assault rifle that the Americans used. And the smart gun is an MG-42, which again was another World War II weapon. It's one of those like bunker nests. Anyone who's played any of the older Call of Duties would have waved them around plenty or watched any war movies. But it's just, yeah, they're actually the um, proper old school World War II guns, obviously casing and framing around them to make them look more modern. All oh, right, yeah. I mean, the minute you mentioned those two guns, uh, Call of Duty came to mind straight away, I have to say. Um, just going back to the extended scenes, obviously the bit we haven't have we quite got to this bit yet with the sentry guns, that's not in the original um, movie at all. They talk about placing these sentry guns, but you don't actually see them firing off, whereas obviously you do in the extended version. Yeah, you do actually see like a bit of chaos going on in the hallways and stuff. I know those scenes um, ratted. And there's a few as well where like they've just finished setting them up. You see like Newt and Burke and they're like carrying some equipment and bits and pieces around. And I think there's just a few yeah. additional shots of them kind of setting up their kind of defences really, isn't there? They just kind of fleshed it this bit out a little bit more. Yeah, there's one thing I noticed because you get two different um, shots of the sentry guns. You get the first bit where the first lot go off and then a little bit later you see the second lot go off, which is when the aliens retreat. But when the first set of sentry guns are going off... Um, Hudson's quite calm. He's like, "Well, baby, look at them go. Yeah, baby. He's not being his normal fucking hell self. And I don't know if that's because this scene was deleted or whatever, you know, but he just doesn't seem his normal, like, scared self. He's quite, yeah, check this out. He's like all bravado again. It's like he's reverted back to how he was on the on the original ship. And then 10 minutes later, he's fucking panicking again. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I know exactly what you mean there. Um, I remember him on it's a bit when he's like, well, I think we've got him demoralised or something like that. And it's like, yeah, you're right. He does kind of go back yeah. to his kind of... Because when we first meet him, he's like doing, oh, I'm the ultimate badass and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, like I say, he, he sort of like goes through after yeah. the encounter in the hive. For the most part, he kind of just turns into Lambert. Yeah, it's just that one one deleted scene. He just he goes back to his old way. But then when the second lot of guns go off, he's sort of back to how he, you know, his panicking ways again. Just thought that was a bit weird. Yeah, no, I agree. So as you mentioned, JT, the Xenomorphs launch small attacks on the sealed doors, and for the most part, the gun turrets are stopping them, but the ammo soon runs out and the Xenos can be heard banging on the doors. Ripley states they will be looking for new ways to get in, so Hicks orders Hudson and Vasquez to walk the perimeter. Ripley heads to the medical room where she has left Newt sleeping. She enters and finds Newt sleeping under the bed. She places her assault rifle on the bed and crawls under to rest with Newt. Later, she awakens and instantly notices something isn't right. She reaches up to grab her rifle, but it is no longer there. They head for the door to find they have been sealed. Ripley uses her lighter to set off the fire detectors in the hope of alerting Hicks and company. 
As Ripley and Newt clutch to each other and worry, a facehugger jumps down and attempts to attach itself to Ripley. She fights it off at first, but it begins to chase her. She trips, and the facehugger wraps its tail around her throat. She manages to hold its body away from her, but is losing strength. Newt begins to scream and turns just in time to see a facehugger climbing over a cabinet behind her. She reacts quickly by pushing the cabinet against the wall, trapping its tail. Hicks and crew arrive just in time. As the Marines enter, they spot Ripley and rush to help. Newt calls out to Hudson, who quickly dashes to her aid. Pulling her to safety, he shoots the facehugger while Hicks, Vasquez and Gorman manage to pull the other facehugger from Ripley. They toss it across the room and Vasquez shoots it. While gasping for breath, Ripley manages to say four words. Burke. It was Burke. And this is this is a fucking, a really good kind of enclosed but really intense sequence, I think. This, this part of the movie onwards is just like series after series of intense like interactions, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, and it's, it's quite funny watching this yesterday. When Hudson shoots that face hug and it was about to get Newt, he absolutely fucking mullers it, doesn't he? He shoots it about a million times. And then the second one that they pull off Ripley, Vasquez just, and it's gone. But like Hudson literally unleashes about 10 tons of ammo on that first one. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I've got it here. Like, how many bullets does Hudson fire? Because <laughs> he goes fucking, fucking nuts. <laughs> I swear, there's like, it, it even cuts away from him at one point. Like, he starts firing it. Like, fair play, he like runs the nukes aid and pulls her out of the way. And I love the way, like, she calls to him and he's like, Jesus Christ, kid, look out. And he like runs yeah. in like a hero. I love that little bit, the way that she kind of recognizes them and calls them all by their names instead of just being a kind of silent side character. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, like firing away like a fucking lunatic. It cuts to Ripley being choked there, then it cuts back and he's still going. It's like, dude, you're on limited ammo here. You've only got a few supplies you managed to gather from the wreckage and you just got done like two fucking magazines. <laughs> yeah, and like you say, when it cuts back to it, it looks like he's hardly touched it. And even though he's already unleashed about 10 rounds into it, so he keeps going. <laughs> One thing I did notice, and again, it's, it's hard because obviously where Ripley set off the, um, the fire thing, all the water's coming down. So which may be obviously like what um, dilutes it a little bit, but you don't really see much of the acid blood splashing away and doing anything, do you? Because he's just fucking mullered it one. You would have thought there'd be acid all over the joint. Yeah, that's a good shout, actually. I didn't think of that. Um, yeah, you're right. And also, I, I do like the way this is filmed, though, where you see Ripley and Newt banging the glass, but when you see it from the other side, it's like soundproof. You can't hear shit at all. It's quite well done. It's strange at first. You're like, why can't you hear anything? Oh, yeah, the glass is soundproof. Like, you almost think the sound's gone on the film or something. Yeah, and it's even like when it cuts back to inside and it's halfway through Ripley screaming, it's all like shouting and sort of does emphasize the fact that it's like soundproof bloody plexiglass. And then you've got like Newt going, break the glass. Yeah, she, she's like, obviously she's little, but she's just patting it going, hell, break it. Just patting it. <laughs> <laughs> I do love this bit as well, because one thing like Sigourney Weaver does so well in this movie and it comes into play a lot more a bit later on. Is like obviously she's lost her daughter in that, but she's got so much kind of natural, kind of like motherly, kind of like maternal kind of acting skills. Like she clings on to New when they're stood in the room, and you can tell she's she's terrified, but she's more terrified for New than she is for herself at this point. I think. Yeah, I, I've actually made a note of that as well. Yeah, like you say, it's, it's a lot of it to do with the fact that she's now obviously lost her daughter, who obviously she never really saw, did she? I don't know. You know, she hasn't seen her for 57 years, obviously, and he's never going to see her again. So she takes the mother instinct with Newt. So, yeah, very good. And a shout out, because I've said with most of our podcasts, I love practical effects. And these two face huggers they use here, all animatronic. Like, obviously, this is pre 
CGI to obviously a degree, especially to the degree it's used these days. But that one that chases Ripley along the floor, that was an animatronic that had like, I think it had like six different moving parts in it to make it run across the floor like that. And I think it was on a cable as well, but that looks pretty genuine, doesn't it? Like it's pretty freaky the way it kind of scatters across and then hops up and jumps at her face. Yeah. They both look really good. Um, and obviously the lighting helps as well because the, the way it's all dark with the flashing red light with the fire alarm that's going off. So that kind of helps the fact that they could disguise a little bit more of these around animatronics, but they're really well done. They look really good. Yeah, they are good. And just a shout out as well to um to Newt's character as well. Like she spins around and sees that face hugger and doesn't panic. Like straight away, she like pushes that thing against the wall. So like she's actually doing all right for herself, isn't she? Like she lasts longer in these situations than most of the fucking the trained people. Yeah, she does. I mean, obviously, she's been surviving on her own before she was picked up. Um, did we ever find out how long she'd been on her own for? Well, again, it's it's tricky, isn't it? Because, like, the way the kind of scenes kind of cut and they've been restored, you don't actually know how long it is between the encounter of them finding the derelict ship to the kind of the place going silent and then them sending the crew. You know, it could be months, couldn't it, really? Yeah, and you don't know how long it took them to get there. You know, these places, it must have taken them a while to get to the planet. Yeah, definitely. And that actually brings up a point I meant to make earlier. So Neil Hicks is saying, you know, it's going to take 17 days before a rescue crew is launched. Yeah. Now, they're a military vessel. They've got a Sulaco, which is just spinning, obviously, orbiting the planet with no fucker on board. It's just orbiting, like, obviously, on a remote or something like that. Hmm. From a military perspective surely they would have had a backup crew in stasis or something, you know, because anything could happen on these things, you know, maybe they need a backup crew of medics. So obviously I know again, it's for the plot, but Bishop now has yeah. to go out and remote pilot the ship down. Surely they'd have had at least an Android or like a reserve crew on the Sulaco, just in case something really drastic happened. You know, they wouldn't just yeah. come out the ass end of space and be the only people on the ship and then just leave the ship doing whatever the fuck it wants up <laughs> in space or something. It yeah. just sounds a bit weird. That's a really good point. Yeah, you're right. They they would have had someone up there monitoring what was going on, wouldn't they? Waiting for any kind of distress call or some kind of signal of what was going on down on LV-426. Yeah, very good point. Right, so Ripley and the Marines confront Burke. Ripley outlays her theory that Burke wanted to try and sneak embryos back to Earth by sabotaging, sabotaging get the words out, the cryo chambers on board the Sulaco. Hudson says they should waste him. Hicks agrees, but Ripley states he has to go back when suddenly the lights go out. They cut the power. Ripley gasps. Hicks orders Hudson and Vasquez to check the corridors with trackers. It's not long before they detect approaching xenomorphs. They retreat back into the room and begin to seal the door. The signal gets closer and closer. Soon it's coming from inside the room. Ripley is staring nervously at the ceiling. Hicks climbs in onto the desk and check the vents. The xenos burst out of the ceiling and the Marines form up to hold them off. Burke runs off and seals the door behind him, leaving the team trapped with the aliens, but in turn is grabbed by a xenomorph in the next room. The team desperately try to hold off the xenos as Vasquez cuts the door lock. It opens and the team rush through. Hudson fights bravely to cover the escape, but fails to retreat in time as a xeno breaks through the flooring, grabs him by the feet and drags him down to his doom. And again, this is just, again, another fucking... They barely just got past the facehuggers and now they're in another shitstorm here. Yeah, it all kicks off again, doesn't it? There's one weird bit about this, and this is the one part where I think Sigourney Weaver's acting's a bit ropey. When she's like, they're trying to work out where they're coming from, she's like, oh, under the floor, something we didn't think of. I don't know. It's just, 
I don't know. Yeah. And why didn't why didn't they think that they were coming from above them? She she thought about they might be underneath them. Surely you think well it might be above us then. Well, considering like for the majority of the first movie, the alien was prancing around in fucking vents. Like she knows they're like they're quite agile and do these things yeah. and stuff. And it's just like yeah, I mean yeah, they've sealed they've sealed the doors and stuff, but not really thought oh shit they might be up above us actually. We might as well you know have a look up there. It's only when they've exhausted every every uh, can't speak myself now every other option that they think about looking up above them. Yeah, and that makes me think of another thing because like, obviously in, when we see the shots of the sentry guns blowing them all up, obviously that's like however many dead aliens. Surely all that acid would have started to eat away at the flooring or the walls and shit, you know, and burn maybe a new way into their complex. It's I know you're not supposed to think about it that much, but there's like there are some flaws here in this logic, and I just think Ripley, like you say, when she's like, "Something on the planet, I don't know." It's just like, yeah, it's a little bit of a desperate. It's not that That's bad, a... but <laughs> it is quite bad, though. I don't know. It just just not in tone with the rest of her acting. I think throughout the whole of the films, not just this one. But yeah, that's a really good point. Why didn't all the acid burn through when they're they're shooting hundreds? Of, well, not maybe not hundreds, but a hell of a lot of aliens were being blasted by those sentry guns. And you think it would have eaten through the roof or whatever they were they were they were when they were shooting, and also a point that I've written down here: when they are all in that room with them, they're all in quite close proximity, but not one of them gets splattered with acid while they're blowing them to pieces, do they? No, I've got that written down here as well because like Vasquez is like fucking firing off grenades at one point, isn't she? And like aliens <laughs> yeah. are fucking blowing up and doing like bloody backflips over fucking tables and shit. But yeah, surely there would have been a a splash or two. Hitting the uh, hitting the walls and stuff, but just yeah, um, it, sorry, carry on. No, I was going to say, and just Hudson, he does go out in a blaze of glory in the end, doesn't he? Bless him, he does go out fighting. Yeah, I did put this here, like you know, um, it, I was actually as a kid, Hudson was one of my favourite characters. He still is, but I was actually always really sad when he died because like they're like trying to get the door open, and Hicks is like saying, "Come on, we need to go," but Hudson's kind of like trying to cover them, and he's like going completely mental, like. I'm not going to fucking try and repeat what he says. He like swears more than us in this sequence, but like he takes down loads yeah. of them and then like the alien grabs him and pulls him down. And I just, for some reason, I really like the fact that Hicks tries to save him. Like, cause I'm Hudson kind of calls out to him and Hicks kind of grabs his arm to try and pull him back. And then that it's pretty gruesome because alien's hand comes up and just grabs Hudson's face and then just like yanks him down under the grills. It's a pretty brutal death, but he goes down swinging. Yeah, it's a pretty brutal death. And, the 18 F words he uses, probably 15 of them are in that scene. He goes mental, doesn't he? <laughs> he does, yeah. But fair play, he goes down like a hero. But just before, obviously, this bit kicks off and everything, the bit when they're kind of interrogating Burke, again, the actor does a good job here because he's like sweating like a pig, isn't he? Like, he's so nervous that he's been found out and everything. And, like Hudson's got like a fucking pulse rifle to his head saying, you know, you should fucking grease this asshole now and everything. And he's like spluttering like a fucking lunatic trying to make sense of what um obviously try and bullshit his way out of it yeah he is and it is good acting and also going back to burke you said obviously he fucks off and he gets taken by Zeno. like i know obviously the crew are now against him and stuff but i think i'd have stayed with them and taken my chances there because he buggers off on his own without any weapons or anything doesn't he what's he think's going to happen dude i'm so glad you said that because i've got here like what is his fucking plan at this point you know he's useless <laughs> yeah like you say, he doesn't have a weapon, and he seals them in this room, and it's like, what, you're just going to let them all die, and they're the only ones with weapons, you know, what? what is your actual plan here? I know maybe he's just gone into, like, I know he's shitting himself so much, he's not thinking, he's just gone into, like, corporate weasel mode or something, but it's like, dude, the only yeah. people that have a chance of saving you are in that room that you've just fucking locked them in. 
yeah, I think it, it's probably blind panic. And, you know, you probably would think irrationally, but like you say, and like I've just said, then I'd stay with the guys who had the weapons, to be honest, even though they're not my friends at the moment. I've probably got a better chance of surviving with them than going out on my own with no weapon whatsoever. What's he going to use? Harsh language? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so now they've reached the next room. Vasquez begins to reseal the door. Desperate for an escape plan, Newt tells them they can reach the landing pad through the vents. They climb in following Newt's directions. Vasquez enters last after sealing the door and is soon being chased by Zenos. She gets splashed with acid and falls down. Realising she has fallen behind, Gorman heads back to save her. They are soon surrounded by Zenos. The two sacrifice themselves by setting off a grenade. The grenade rumbles the structure, and while climbing over a large fan belt, Newt slips and falls down a vent. Hicks realises she is wearing the tracking bracelet he gave Ripley, and the two set off to locate her. We see Newt walking through some sort of underground system that looks like a sewer half-filled with water. Hicks and Ripley locate her and have to cut through the flooring above to reach her. As Hicks cuts the flooring, Ripley monitors the approaching Xenos with the tracker. Hicks is nearly through when the Xeno rises up out of the water behind Newt. Hicks and Ripley burst through the flooring, only to find Newt's doll, Casey, floating in the water. Ripley pleads with Hicks, they don't kill you and Newt will still be alive. Hicks agrees, but insists they need to get moving. While escaping, Hicks takes down an alien and gets splashed with its blood. It eats through his armour and Ripley helps him get to the landing pad where Bishop is waiting with the dropship. And again, this is like another kind of quite badass, really intense sequence. But like, this is like the one time where Gorman kind of like, he goes down, like goes out of a bang pretty much, doesn't he? At least he kind of like tries to do something heroic. Yeah, he does go out of a big bang. And um, I mean... At the end of the day, there's two aliens coming. They're totally trapped. I think I'd rather blow myself up than succumb to one of those because, you know, you probably will get dragged away, cocooned, face hugger on you, and it's just, you know, blow yourself up. It's the worst of, or the best of the uh, bad situation, isn't it? Um, I don't know. I don't know if you knew this, but there's a fact that when they're filming that scene and uh, Vasquez has got the gun and it, it jams and stuff, uh, Jeanette Goldstein couldn't handle the recoil of the gun when they're filming that, so. Gail Ann Hurd, who's the producer, had to step in as a double and film that scene because the gun was just recoiling too much. And Gail Ann Hurd apparently had firearms experience, so that it's actually her firing off the gun. Ah, I did hear that um, Gail Ann Hurd was a, a hand double for um, Jeanette Goldstein. I didn't know what scene it was for because obviously it couldn't be for all of it because there's quite a lot of full body shots. But oh yeah, that must um, that must have been it. Yeah, it was that, that scene there. And also um, when Newt goes slides down that chute into the water apparently carrie hen enjoyed filming that so much you know she's a kid you fucking would apparently it's a massively long slide it was real she kept fucking her lines up on purpose so she had to keep reshooting it um to the point where james cameron got so pissed off of her he's like if you actually do this right this time so we can film it you can then just use the slide for the rest of the day and so she got the lines right and he was true to his word he just let her keep sliding down that then for the rest of the day Oh, fair play. Yeah, can't argue with that, can you? <laughs> but like you say, it's no, like just a fucking <laughs> massive slide. i got to say, one thing yeah. thing here that I really like the way this is shot. So the bit when they're in the vent, you know, and Vasquez is like, she's being chased by... She takes a few of them out, to be fair. She takes down like two or three of them. Um, yeah, she does. But the way this is shot, so like it's quite a long shot of the, um, like the vent, and it's kind of like lit up and silhouetted. 
the way the aliens come scrambling down those vents, I know I don't like the fast moving ones as much as the slower one, but they look fucking terrifying because it's just kind of like an outline of fucking legs and tail and God knows what. And they're moving so fast. It's actually, it is quite intense that bit. And you think, man, I'd be fucking terrified if that thing was charging towards me. Yeah, is you're right. And watching this again yesterday, there's one, there's one bit though where one comes down all scrambling, like you just said. Is that repeated or is it two separate shots? Because it looks like they repeat that sequence twice. I don't know if you've picked up on that. It wouldn't surprise me if they repeat it. I haven't. I didn't notice it last time I watched it, and I don't know off the top of my head if it was. But yeah, I think there are a couple of sequences where they probably re-shoot it, and obviously just do like a short shot. It wouldn't surprise me because. The aliens they used in this was a mixture of people in suits and animatronics, depending on what was going on. So I'd imagine it wasn't easy getting a bloke in a suit to try and fucking scramble his way through those bloody vents or anything for the shot. Yeah, like I say, watching it again yesterday, you see one scrabbling down, then a bit later you see another one. I thought, that looks like the same shot I've just seen a few minutes or seconds before. Whether it is or not, I don't know. It could just be a slightly different angle. Um, and, and just another thing before we move on, uh, Newt, in this scene, when she's guiding Ripley through the um, the tunnels and stuff, she's got the old Billy Butcher going on, isn't she, with her accent oh. all over the shop. <laughs> this is one bit. Oh, fucking hell. I'll, I'll have to do the impression. It's going to be shit, so sorry. If she's listening to this, don't <laughs> fucking hunt me down or anything. <laughs> I've got a drink here, so be careful. <laughs> all right. Well, she's going along, and she's like, just out there, it's a shortcut across the earth. It's just like, yeah, that's it. It's like straight ahead yeah. and left. She goes in like really posh English to like, like you say, fucking Billy Butcher. Yeah, it's just a bit of a strange one, isn't it? I mean, I know she was young. She's brilliant in this film, don't get me wrong. But yeah, it's all over the shop in that scene particularly. She is good. I'll tell you one bit I love. I don't Is that actually a sewer she's in? It must be some form. They must have built some kind of sewage network in that bloody complex, wouldn't they? Because it's strange that there's like water in there. But that scene where the alien comes up out of the water, that is a fucking scary shot. And that alien is fucking huge. Compared to all the others that are in this movie, other than the queen who we meet later, this thing comes up. And yeah, granted, it stood, obviously, Newt's a little girl. But this scene just looks fucking terrifying. I think it's probably like the scariest alien in the whole movie. Yeah, I was thinking that when I watched this again yesterday, that, that alien is massive. And it might be due to the fact that Newt's half the size of everyone else. But yeah, it looks fucking huge, doesn't it? And it's terrifying when it comes out. Yeah, and, and her her reaction her reaction again when she screams is fucking pretty good, isn't it? For a kid, it's, it's genuine. Well, yeah, I mean, what else could you do in that situation? Wouldn't you? you just fucking scream or you like freeze in silence. You're not going to fucking get away, especially in water. But another thing, yeah, I really like is Ripley's um, again that kind of like maternal acting, like when they kick through the grate and they find that she's been taken. Like the way she's kind of like screaming, there's like tears in her eyes, and it seems so genuine. Um, and like quite yeah. kind of like emotionally powerful. Yeah, totally. Um, just one thing, actually, you you know more about the actual alien law and stuff than I do. So sometimes they take you away. They've obviously taken Newt away. They take other people away. Sometimes they just fucking the extended jaw comes out and they just kill you. Is there any reason why they they do that? Do you know? Well, there's some depending on what you kind of read. I mean, I'm not. I try not to read too much into too much because obviously, especially like Wikipedia and obviously there's a lot of like fan movies and stuff, which are good in their own right. People have got their different ways, but no one ever really explains what the aliens eat. So I assume they must Mm. have to get sustenance at some point. So for the most part, I'd imagine where possible they will take you because obviously their perfect organism structure is like, if you're not any use to them, there's no point. So unless they can eat you, or turn you into one of them, 
that's pretty much your two options if you meet an alien you're going to be lunch or you're going to be one of them so i assume it's just like depends on the situation and who you know the alien needs a snack at the time that's the way i kind of <laughs> consider it <laughs> yeah i've just always thought that like you know sometimes they'll just kill you and just think whatever and other times they'll take you and also i'm assuming if you're if they have killed you then they then can't like turn you into one of them there's no use is there if you're not alive you've got nothing to host them have you i'm assuming yeah yeah absolutely um yeah it's a, it's a good question i don't think it's ever been fully confirmed if anyone's listening actually knows a definitive answer um to that but yeah as far as i'm aware they are they do eat occasionally because they need some form of sustenance to keep them going but generally they're all about just growth and population Depends what mood they're in, I guess. It's like when you go to Tesco's, isn't it? You buy some sandwiches, you might eat them straight away. You might take them home and put them in the fridge. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you see a xenomorph in Tesco and give it steer clear. <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah. and one, one more bit here, um, just before we do move on. The bit in the elevator, I think, is a really good jump scare, and I love the way it happens, because obviously they rush to the elevator, Hicks and Ripley do. And they're like pressing the button and the door's not moving. So they're tapping it and they're waiting and you know something's going to happen. And the door starts closing, but that alien is moving so fucking quick. The way it just suddenly appears. I don't know if that's a bloke in a suit on a cable because it's coming along the ceiling or whether it's animatronic. But it just bursts into the fucking elevator so quickly. That's a really good sort of jump scare, I think. Yeah, it is. But one thing I did note in this, and it happens in every film, not just this. The minute you get into a lift or something in these films, the doors never fucking work straight away, do they? No. <laughs> it's always, they always jam or something happens. It's like, you know, every time, not just this film, like I say, any film. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, just can't rely on fucking, just can't rely on anything in these movies, can you? Maybe I well just fucking find a little box to hide and hope for the best. Yeah, exactly. Or just don't go down there in the first place. Yeah, always a viable option. <laughs> Yeah. So Bishop informs Ripley they are 46 minutes until the atmosphere processor detonates, but she tells him they are staying. They head towards the processor, which is breaking apart around them. Bishop emphasizes that time is against them, and she asks the injured Hicks to make sure Bishop doesn't leave. Ripley straps a flamethrower to a pulse rifle, loads up on flares, and heads into the hive to find Newt. Before she leaves, she turns to Hicks to say goodbye, almost as if she doesn't expect to be coming back. She heads to the lower levels in the cargo elevator and begins following Newt's signal through the hive. Her hopes are dashed when she finds the bracelet on the floor. We see Newt cocooned, and an egg begins to open near her. She screams, which alerts Ripley, who rushes to find her and shoots the facehugger and the lurking xenomorph. They begin to retreat, but emerge in a large chamber full of eggs. As Ripley surveys the room, her eyes are drawn to a slimy tube laying the eggs. As she looks higher, the monstrous presence of the queen alien hangs in the darkness. The giant creature does nothing at first, but soon its arms drop down from covering its face and huge jaws emerge. The queen hisses and several xenos emerge. Ripley fires a flamethrower into the air, then points it at the eggs. The queen seems to understand and motions for her drones to retreat. And this is kind of like James Cameron knew he probably had to bring something new to the movie. So he brings his fucking gigantic bloody fucking queen alien in, which does look awesome, to be honest. It does look really good. I think when you said earlier, 46 minutes, I think it's 26 minutes. It's 26 minutes. Oh, even less than. Yeah, because, yeah, because I read earlier, this actual whole scene is 26 minutes long. Oh, sweet. Actually, I didn't time it myself because I read this after I watched it. But yeah, apparently this whole scene from when he says to when they get, we won't spoil it too much, but is 26 minutes long. 
Um, yeah, that Queen Alien looks great. The one thing I will say is when, when you first see it and you see that fucking tubey sack thing laying the eggs, you're like, that looks a bit shit. But then when it pans to the actual Queen itself, you're like, fucking hell, all right, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's just, I love the way it's just kind of, at first, you don't really know what you're looking at, do you? Because it's kind of just hanging. And it's got these big fucking tubes and stuff coming out of it. And you don't know if it's got wings or whatever it's doing. And then it's, mm. its arms move and you're like, all right, this thing's actually looking a bit big now. Then his legs come down. Then his like, mouth drops out of this big shell and you see this huge jaw and you're just like, fucking hell, this thing is just huge. It's absolutely monstrous. Yeah, it is. Um, I don't know if it's as terrifying as the actual, the whatever you want to call them, the drones, you know, the, the proper Xenos though. I don't know why. They just scare me more. The Queen, maybe it's because it is so big, it's not quite as terrifying. I don't know if that makes sense. Maybe it's just me. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Um, yeah, the, the Xenomorph, the, the original Xenomorph is fucking terrifying, and most of the drones, like the general ones, they're pretty scary in their own right. The Queen is just, obviously, I wouldn't want to meet it if it was real. Um, no. But yeah, it's just something about it. It's just really, it's badass. Like, it's not scary, but it's just a very right. intimidating foe on screen, and it's just like, you know what they do with sequels? They always need to go one bigger, don't they? And I think it was a pretty good call for Cameron to do something like this. Um, but I just yeah, think it's really I mean, iconic. It, yeah, it's imposing rather than terrifying, isn't it? And yeah, it, I mean, like I say, I wouldn't want to meet it on a dark night. But I'd feel that I, I could outrun it easier than I could outrun the, one of the normal Xenos. Obviously, it's so fucking big, it's not as agile for a start. Yeah, which we see um, shortly when it sort of ends up trying to sort of like chase them, doesn't it? There's actually um, yeah. a deleted scene. And only got it's not ever been restored into the movie, so I'd be interested to see if they do it when they do the 4K. Because I don't think James Cameron likes what this implies for the Ripley character. But I think this scene is awesome, and you can watch it on YouTube. So as she's searching for Newt, she actually finds Burke, who's up on the wall, cocooned, and he wakes up and he's like, "Oh, Ripley, you gotta save me!" and all that sort of shit. And she just sort of like looks at him, and then she just takes out a grenade and puts it in his hand and just walks off and leaves him. She's it's almost like you know normally. Ripley would obviously try and save people, but after everything Burke's done, it's almost like, no, you fucking, you know, I'm not saving you. I'm, you know, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to fucking save you either. I'm just going to leave you to your fate. You deserve this. And I don't know, Cameron didn't yeah. allow that into the movie because he didn't want people to see that kind of cold-heartedness of Ripley. But I'd do the same fucking thing she did. Yeah, totally. He set them up. Uh, I haven't seen that scene. I'll have to search that out. Um, but then even if she did free him, what fucking use would he be? You know, he hasn't got a weapon unless she gives him one of hers. And I certainly wouldn't give him a weapon that I had because he probably can't even use it anyway. So, yeah, she probably did the right thing. Yeah. And also, um, the bit where she saves Newt, she shoots the face hugger. But that face hugger is like, really close to Newt. So, again, once again, it's a whole acid blood thing. Surely that would have splashed all over Newt and burned her face or something. Yeah, it's really good timing as well, and it happens to just be around the corner when it when it comes out of the egg. I mean, it's one of those typical movie coincidental timings again, isn't it? It is, yeah, and it's just like new again with that bloody scream of hers. It's pretty like piercing, isn't it? But again, it's like that proper like terrified little kid type scream as well. But it's definitely <laughs> surprising to wake up the whole fucking nest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Another thing I kind of like about this is when um. When Ripley is obviously staring at the Queen, like you kind of see the look on her face. Again, I don't know if she's scared or if she just can't comprehend what she's actually seeing. Like it's like as if the normal aliens aren't bad enough. This fucking thing's in now. But I kind of like the way that you see the kind of intelligence of the Queen. Like when those drones turn up and Ripley fires the flamethrower into the air, then points it at the eggs. Like you see the recognition. 
not in an expression, but the way the queen kind of watches her and then it kind of nods to the drones to go away. Like they are intelligent in a different way. Yeah, you're right. Um, also, when Ripley flame throws the eggs and stuff and everything, she's got limited ammo. Obviously, she's only got the two guns strapped together. She then starts grenading them and shit and everything. I'd, I'd have been like, well, probably save these grenades and all the ammo I've got for, for other things. The eggs are all on fire now. And I know, obviously, she wants to make sure that they don't open and start hatching or whatever. But she seems to waste a lot of ammo in that scene. Yeah, she does. She kind of loses it. So it's like, so as Ripley and Newt head towards the exit, the eggs begin to open. Ripley lights the place up with a flamethrower, as JT just mentioned, and starts firing a grenade launcher at the Queen before making a run for it. As they approach the elevator, they are trapped, waiting for it to come down. Ripley makes for a nearby ladder, but the Queen emerges from around the corner. The elevator arrives just in time. As Ripley and Newt arrive on the platform, they find the dropship has left. Newt clings to Ripley as the processor begins exploding around them, and suddenly the second elevator arrives and inside is the Queen. Knowing this is the end, Ripley tells Newt to close her eyes, but Newt screams, look. Ripley turns to see the dropship rising up behind her. Bishop rescues them and they escape the planet just as a processor explodes. After narrowly avoiding the nuclear shockwave, they dock with a Sulaco. Bishop informs Ripley that he has had to sedate Hicks due to his injuries and apologises for taking off. The platform has become too unstable when he had to circle and hope he was able to rescue them. Ripley says he did alright when suddenly something splashes on the ground and begins to burn. They both look down and something erupts from Bishop's chest. A gigantic tail emerges and lifts him off the ground as the Queen emerges from the back of the ship and tears Rip Bishop in half. It steps out menacingly and stands looking between Newt and Ripley. Again, this is like another... It kind of does what Alien does, doesn't it? It kind of leads you into that false sense of security. Like, she fights her way out of the hive, which I think is a pretty badass scene. And like you said, when she's firing those grenades, it's almost like she kind of loses herself. And at that point in time, she's just completely hating the aliens and they like they've taken everything away from her and when she starts firing she just literally loses herself in anger and rage for like a moment or two and it's just going absolutely fucking ballistic yeah she does and when she starts using the grenade launcher she pumps them into the tubey sack thing laying the eggs i'd have been pumping them into the actual queen alien herself as well wouldn't yeah too right but yeah, there's one thing, and it doesn't bother me so much now. It always used to bother me, the fact that the Queen Alien got into the lift. And it, I know they're intelligent creatures. We've found that out. But I just thought, I don't know, it always made me just a bit meh that the fact the aliens got into the lift and stuff and gone up there. But, you know, it doesn't bother me so much now. I've kind of grown out of that. But you knew that wasn't going to be the end. There's no way it was going to finish because that Queen Alien wasn't technically dead, was it? So you knew it was going to have to be killed off. No, um, absolutely. It's kind of like what Alien did where, you know, you think she blew up the ship and then obviously she gets on the Narcissus and then the alien's on there. It's again, isn't it? They blow up the complex and then when they think they're safe, the alien jumps out again. But I agree with you, that elevator thing, it's never quite sat well with me. Like it's a, it's pretty scary, obviously, when it opens and you see the alien, like her coming out onto the platform. Um but also, yeah. also as well, it's like, how do they not know it was on the back of the ship? Surely Bishop would have sensed like the weight of it or something as he was docking with the Sulaco. I mean, it's fucking Queen Alien. It's not exactly a set of car keys, is it? Like, holding on to the back of your <laughs> ship, you're bound to notice. Well, I've got this in my notes because I watched this quite intently yesterday, this this whole last bit. There's no sign of it being attached to the, the shuttle when it takes off, is there? No. Or when it leaves the planet. And I'm thinking, that thing's fucking huge. You would have been able to see some kind of evidence of it being attached to the ship, wherever it was. I mean, it comes down 
from the landing gear, doesn't it? Yeah, it's just off the back of the ship. And again, like the landing gear, the dropship's not massive, is it? Like it's obviously no. big, but it's not like huge, huge. So there's no way it could have like that concealed Queen itself. That Queen Alien's probably two thirds of the size of the ship itself, isn't it? It's massive. Easy, yeah. And again, it probably weighs a fucking ton. So like, when I'm no fucking flight expert. And maybe not like through space and in the heat at the moment when they're escaping, but surely Bishop, as he was docking, he would have noticed there might have been like some weight differentiation with the like, you know, when he was trying to get into the clamps and then come and like, land on the landing pad or something like that. But it's just, again, I know you're not supposed to think about yeah. these sort of things, but just in practicality, it's like, hang on, you would have known that thing, you know, it's not, in, it's not inconspicuous, is it? You would notice the Queen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when, when the, the dropship does leave, it sort of takes a bit of the platform with it, I think. Um, but there's no sign of the, the Queen being attached to it anywhere. But Bishop's death is pretty fucking brutal, even to this day, isn't it, where he gets ripped in half. It's pretty full on. I, yeah, I've got that in my notes, actually. Like, even though he's obviously an android and stuff. But yeah, the way that tail just fucking splurts through his chest and he lifts him up and all the fucking the white blood's coming out of his mouth. And, he, and the way he, the noises like Lance Henriksen's making, like gurgling, screaming noise and that. So... Even as an android, he must feel some form of pain or injury. Yeah, I mean, I say death, obviously, he's an android, so he could be put back together as we find out. But um, just talking of noises, actually, going back to something I had earlier, and I forgot to mention, when they're in the original hive and the aliens are being shot by the Marines and they're, they're making like elephant-type noises, I don't know if you knew this, that was actually baboon noises, not elephants, because they sound like elephants when they're being killed, don't they? But apparently there were baboon noises that were then obviously fucked about with post-production. But I never knew that. No, I never knew that. Even like until you just said it there, I always thought they used like some kind of like, like you say, baby elephant noises and maybe obviously mixed them around a little bit with um obviously some sound effects and stuff. Oh, that's interesting that they're baboons. Because up until this moment, I've always thought they were actually like baby elephants. Yeah, same. Till I was doing a bit of research yesterday. Again, this I think was from Wikipedia, but, you know, I imagine it's true. Uh, in um, you know that scene when they come out of the elevator and like Ripley's holding new, and then the Queen comes out, and they're on the platform before Bishop turns up. Now, quite yeah. interestingly, in the novelization, which I haven't read for years, I've still got the copy I owned when I was a kid. I don't remember reading it, but I was checking earlier. I'm probably going to read it again just to see obviously a few differences. But it apparently emphasizes in that point when Ripley obviously thinks that the Queen's going to kill him and Bishop's abandoned them that she looks over and she contemplates throwing herself and Newt off the platform because she'd rather die that way. They both die that way than obviously face the, obviously the reality of being killed by an alien or what might come next. And obviously you can kind of see it in her face when she's looking around because she's just kind of like desperately looking for someone to go where they've got nowhere to run. And you've got to think that would probably cross your mind if you're in that situation, wasn't it? I don't, don't want to be eaten by the fucking alien. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, Certainly, if I didn't have Newt with me, I probably would. But, I mean, yeah, it's probably, again, same as when Gorman and Vasquez blew themselves up. So, lesser of two evils, isn't it? I think I'd um, throw myself off and just see what happened. So, Ripley waves her arms to attract the Queen's attention and tells Newt to run and hide. Once she is hiding in the flooring, Ripley runs for a storage bay and closes a door. The Queen begins hunting for Newt, pulling up floor grates and manages to trap her. Just as he is reaching for the girl, the storage door opens and Ripley comes out piloting the power loader. Get away from her, you bitch. Which is a classic line. It's fucking amazing. I love the way she delivers yeah. that. Yeah. It's so good. The queen hisses and heads to confront Ripley. 
The two battle it out until Ripley manages to grab the queen by the throat. She opens the inner hatch of an airlock and attempts to throw the queen in, but the queen latches on and they both fall into the airlock. The queen is trapped under the power loader. Ripley begins to climb up the ladder, but her foot is grabbed. She begins to activate the airlock using a wall panel and the door opens. Bishop and Newt struggle to hold on as the vacuum begins to suck things out of the ship. Newt loses her grip, but Bishop manages to grab her. Ripley desperately clings to the ladder against the intense vacuum of space and the weight of the queen holding her leg. Eventually, the queen lets go and is sucked into space. Ripley climbs the ladder and closes the airlock. Newt runs to hug her and Bishop smiles at her. Not bad for a human. After settling Bishop and Hicks into the cryotubes, Newt asks Ripley if they can dream. Ripley says, yes, I think we both can. And the movie closes showing Ripley in the cryo sleep. Now, this this sort of end fight, like action movies back then, and even to this day, you always had that kind of one-on-one fight. And this kind of just elevates it slightly, doesn't it? Like the fact that Ripley can actually now somewhat go toe-to-toe with the Queen Alien. Yeah, exactly that. And this scene actually still looks really good now, 35 years later. I think it's it's really well done. I've got a few problems with this scene. I'm sure your thoughts are probably the same. Um, the fact that the alien gets blown into space again, the same as it was in the first one, not a cop-out, but it's just a bit disappointing it ended the same way. But, you know, how else are we going to kill this fucking monstrosity of a thing? And also the fact that A, Bishop managed to hold on to Newt when that fucking vacuum was sucking so hard. And then Ripley is holding on to that ladder with just her arm and she's got a queen alien hanging on to her and the vacuum of space. Like that would have ripped her fucking arms off, surely. I've got the exact same thing here. And it's not just that. It's like the fact that she's just been doing battle with this queen. She's been fucking sweating, all kinds of things. I mean, and that ladder's just those proper industrial kind of metal rounded <laughs> things. Yeah, I don't... I'm no fucking expert on like space physics, but I'm sure the vacuum of space. I the, the bit that cracks me up though is when because <laughs> Bishop's like been ripped in half and he gets pulled along the floor and he's like, oh, he's like just jumping. yeah, he's just <laughs> sliding along. Any half of him, he's <laughs> quite funny, isn't it? Although it does look quite good, it looks quite convincing. Yeah, but yeah, it, it is quite funny in a sort of sadistic sort of way. <laughs> it looks more convincing than when they do that cut between Ash's prosthetic head and then Ian Holmes' head in the previous movie. <laughs> but no, they do a good job there. But like you say, like. And you can see he's like got two fingers pretty much in like a grating. And I know he's an android. He's probably stronger, <laughs> but like he's holding on. He must be weak because he's been cut in half. The vacuum of space and he's got yeah. fucking newt on him. And like you say, Ripley's got a fucking queen alien dangling from her foot. And she's about a foot <laughs> away from like the actual opening. And it's just like, yeah, this is a bit of a fucking stretch for me. I mean, the fight between the queen and Ripley is pretty good. I, I like that. And the animatronics, it was mm. a mixture of animatronics and two people inside the Queen Alien controlling it, obviously for the legs and the arms and stuff. So did a hell of a good job of practical effects. But yeah, this is a bit of a stretch. And don't you think it's convenient yeah. that she jumps out the power loader, halfway up the ladder, she gets grabbed, but there just happens to be a panel right next to her where she can open the fucking door. Yeah, it's a bit of a coincidence. And um, also, when she falls with the Queen Alien into the that dock or whatever it is the uh, airlock that would have taken a lot out of her even maybe even killed her that's quite a long drop and she smashes into that power load i know she's still in it but she's being jolted around in it that would have taken a hell of a lot out of her yeah especially when you think like the power loader obviously it's a beefy bit of kit but it's completely open at the front isn't it it's got like no kind of like roll cage or anything like her arms are out because even at one point the queen like is fucking shooting its mouth tongue thing into it and obviously her tongue's fucking massive 
And Ripley's actually having to move left and right to avoid it. I always thought that bit was pretty badass because that when you get that close up shot of her like trying to kill Ripley with her tongue, and it's just like it's pretty brutal. Yeah, yeah. There's that little flamethrower, isn't there? And she sort of fires that at the Queen. But yeah, that that fall would have taken a hell of a lot out of her. And then even after the Queen Alien's gone and she pulls herself up to actually close the hatch, that's still a bit far fetched. The fact she manages to climb up the rest of the ladder. You know, and she's pretty bruised and battered, and manages to not be sucked out herself. But you know, it's it's still a good ending. It's just, I don't know, I don't know how else they could have done it. I mean, how else could she have killed that thing? Yeah, I thought the same thing. It seems to be like a reoccurring trend. You know, how do you kill the alien? It made sense in the first movie because of the situation. I suppose they're in a similar situation now because they're back on the spaceship. You couldn't have like shot it to death. But yeah, it just seemed like you know that seems to be the only way to kill. A xenomorph is blast out of an airlock, but yeah, it is a stretch. And obviously, it's action movies, aren't they? They all fucking they're all a bit of a stretch in a way, just to get the the kind of heartbeat racing and for an intense sequence. But I reckon they would have all been sucked out, and that would have been the end of it. Yeah, but it's still a great ending to to a great film. And as I said at the top of this podcast, it's it's almost impossible to say if this is better than the first film because they are so different and they're both brilliant in their own right. So. I wouldn't like to say which one is the better film of the two. I don't know about yourself. Yeah, it is, it's a struggle. I mean, I always say like, I, I always say like Alien is my favourite like overall movie and stuff. And I kind of stand by that. But there is a huge argument for which one of these movies is better. And it also depends what mood I'm in as to which one I want to watch more. Um, I love them both. They're both absolutely great. And I think both directors bring something very unique to the franchise yet they still manage to connect it as we said at the said at the start but um yeah they're both absolutely amazing and if you listen to this podcast and you haven't seen this movie i hope we've done some kind of justice to it but it's definitely worth watching yeah i mean we were obviously saying last week and i've said it in the little twitter things i've sent out that alien is probably both of our favorite movies of all time so in that respect people probably think well why are you saying you can't really compare the two which is the better film but it, like you say, a lot of times it does bear, um, sort of boil down to what mood I'm in. If I want a bit of action, I'll definitely go towards Aliens. If I want to be scared out of my fucking life, I'll go to Alien. So, yeah, both both awesome. Both need to be watched. And, yeah, not, not really much else to say, is there? There isn't, no. And um, once again, shout out to all our listeners. We always appreciate you tuning in and we hope you're enjoying this uh, series. It probably won't come as much of a surprise as to what next week's uh, episode is going to be about, but we'll save it just in case there is anyone who can't yeah. quite figure it out. We'll save it for a surprise. <laughs> I, I think, you know, even after last week's, people might have guessed, and certainly after this week's, if you don't know what next week's is about, then you probably shouldn't be listening, but please do anyway. Um, we never used to even give a hint, did we, before, but I, I think most people will be able to work it out. Yeah, absolutely. So once again, this is Bread Roll signing off. And JT as well. And just before I go, do remember to um, check us out on Twitter if you haven't already. Uh, Hyperbaric Goats on there. And uh, I just say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure.